If you don't know who Daniel Schmachtenberger is, let's just say this. He's so fucking smart that I was intimidated. I was intimidated to do this podcast, but it turned out amazing. We were able to talk about so many things about consciousness, life, existence, the challenges we're facing. I can't wait to share this show with you. This show is brought to you by Lucy. Lucy.co slash amp or code word amp for 20% off by Native Deodorant, nativedeo.com slash Marcus. And of course, by Onnit, onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything always. So as I was saying about Daniel Schmachtenberger, he's like one of these Rubik's Cubes, almost AI, but in a human form type of minds that's able to just work on problems and continue to look at the puzzle from every different angle until he's able to come to a conclusion that makes a lot of sense. And through a project that he's collaborating on, the Consilience Project, he's really helping humanity with the meta understanding of everything that we're thinking about, both the existential problems and the way that we're thinking about the existential problems, which is probably a lot more important than just worrying about the solutions. First, we have to figure out what we're thinking about before we can figure out what to do about what we're thinking because if our thinking isn't straight we have no chance at all and daniel schmachtenberger is here to help us get our thinking straight but before we get started a word from our sponsors you've heard me talk about lucy nicotine gum and maybe you read in my book own the day own your life me talking about how nicotine is a natural nootropic it's something that's been shown in clinical research to help put you in that alpha state to get you a little bit sharper than you were before and this is a really clean delivery system the big challenge with nicotine are all the ways that you get it into your system don't smoke cigarettes that's just a horrible horrible idea you know a cigar every now and then or a nicotine pouch or whatever else you might have these all have their pros and cons but lucy gum is just one of the cleanest ways to get nicotine in your system and give you the benefits of having nicotine acting on your brain so check it out they got some great flavors wintergreen cinnamon pomegranate and be mindful you know you want to make sure that you're driving the nicotine car and the nicotine car is not driving you so go to lucy.co slash amp or use the promo code amp for 20 percent off that's l-u-c-y.co slash amp or code word amp for 20 percent off and with any nicotine product warning this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco nicotine is an addictive chemical Next up, we have Native Deodorant. And you guys have probably heard me talk about this one too because it's the best deodorant. It's deodorant that you could lick like it was an ice cream cone. Now, it's not going to taste delicious, but it's going to smell delicious for your armpits. So let your armpits lick it instead of your mouth because your armpits are actually licking it in a way because anything that goes in your armpits goes in your body just like anything that goes in your mouth goes in your body. There's many ways in. The skin absorbs stuff. So that's why it's so important that you have aluminum-free deodorant, deodorant without all the crap in it. And of course, you want it to smell good. You definitely don't want it to stop you from sweating because that's really bad for you. So this is the way to go. If you want deodorant, check out Native Deodorant. They got some great scents like coconut and vanilla, citrus and herbal musk, lavender and rose. They got a lot of good shit. So definitely check it out. If you're into deodorant, this is the one. NativeDeo.com slash Marcus or promo code Marcus at checkout. That's Native deo.com slash marcus or promo code marcus at checkout for 20 percent off your first order 
And last up, we have On It. Now, what I want to talk about with On It is we have so many fucking cool products that we're about to drop and amazing flavors of existing products, different form factors, different products entirely. Like my mind is blown with what we're going to bring it to you. So I want you guys to definitely keep checking out what everything's going on at on it. And if you don't subscribe to the newsletter, if you don't follow on it on social, please do. And also I'll try to let you know too, if you follow me on social, uh, put on your notifications maybe. And that way you won't miss any of the cool shit I'm dropping for you on social media. But in either case, definitely keep a lookout for everything that we have coming down the pipe. It's amazing. And in the meantime, you can save 10% on absolutely everything on it has to offer on it.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything always. And you can subscribe to the newsletter through that link. You can do everything you need to through the onit.com slash Aubrey portal. Thanks fam. I love you guys. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Daniel Schmachtenberger. Daniel, how are you, my brother? I'm good, my friend. And I said that I said that that way is particular because we were just commenting how some people don't receive the warm welcome of my brother in the same way as other people. So I wanted to really put extra emphasis on my brother just for the intro here. Start us off right. I receive it and appreciate it. (laughs) Absolutely, man. Well, there's a lot of amazing shit for us to talk about. And, you know, one of the new things that you've uh, you've gotten into is called the Consilience Project. And it's just a really beautiful, you know, group of people. And I'll let you describe, you know, the people you've brought together, what you're trying to do and the, and the problems you're trying to solve with this project. And then we'll, uh, we'll get into the, the details of some of the things that you're pointing to. Yeah. So start with just a brief overview of the consilience project. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I will just clarify. It's not people I've brought together is kind of group of people who had known each other, worked in related spaces and self-assembled into this thing. Uh, It's actually an important distinction. Um, Come back to that more. But uh, yeah, some of the people who's uh, thinking about world problems, I have learned the most from, respect the most, uh, and have a a depth of actual care and commitment in addition to very nuanced understanding. Um, Maybe the easiest way to talk about it to begin with is we can look at the history of our social institutions and social coordination systems before we had formalized ideas of markets, global markets, say before Scottish enlightenment, go back, you know, feudalism before nation states, uh, back to tribal cultures, early empires changes in the social systems by which lots of humans can coordinate effectively towards shared purposes, humans who understand the world differently and want different things. Those social systems had to make major evolutionary leaps as the underlying tooling basis, the techno-industrial basis of the societies did because it changed the nature of the types of things that people were doing, how many of them could coordinate the division of labor and specialization and the types of issues they had and like that. So you'd see step functions and tooling, and then you'd see correspondingly breakdown of the previous societies that couldn't handle those issues and the new step functions and the social capacities. And obviously that had to also mean step functions in the nature of education. How do we develop the people who can understand the whole knowledge base that is needed to run the civilization? Because obviously in you know, a hundred years ago, we didn't have to develop people that could run a 
internet. And now you and I are speaking mediated at the speed of light mediated by satellites. There's a lot of human knowledge that is needed to keep that system that we all depend upon running. So education to be able to advance that civilizational knowledge has to evolve to do that thing. <clears throat> if we look at the current problems that face the world, we look at the fact that we had a movement from broadcast media where a few people could broadcast a message and everyone else would get a relatively consistent message from the printing press on through radio and television to with the internet, this kind of decentralized, everybody can broadcast and then a complete explosion of more content than anybody can take in. And then how does someone find the result that they're looking for when there's a billion search results for anything? So you get these major platforms that based on network dynamics end up being people's main interface with the totality of the internet that is curating content specific to them. This is Facebook, YouTube, Google. And so of course people get customized worldviews that have nothing in common, like a person in a red state and a person in a blue state, their newsfeed on Facebook might have not a single thing in common. And yet they don't realize that the world that they're getting exposed to is not actually the world. It is just a little fragment of it. And of course, since Facebook is a company and it is making money by selling this person's attention through advertising, it wants to optimize people's time on site. It optimizes their time on site by having them spend as much time as possible through attention hijacking. And that happens if I stay in a very conscious, self-aware place, I'll realize I don't want to spend that much time on Facebook and get the fuck off and do something else. So the degree to which I get, of course, distracted, engaged, limbically hijacked by fear, desire, in-group, out-group type dynamics, I'm going to spend more time. So the AI that optimizes that newsfeed automatically ends up driving individual bias, like confirming people's bias, because people spend more time when their bias is getting confirmed than when they're being exposed to new stuff that disorients them. And uh, in-group, out-group type of identity. So we get more outrage, more kind of limbic hijack, more bias confirmation. How do you run a democracy with that? No, those are new issues. Nobody ever faced those issues of a fra completely fragmenting worldview mediated by a technological infrastructure of that type that has more people than China and the US combined. Yeah. No previous people had to deal with the issue of weaponized drones that could take out infrastructure targets that anybody could make on their own at home, or actually arms race on weaponized AI, or hitting planetary boundaries regarding species extinction and uh, dead zones and oceans and climate change and a million other things. So when you look at how badly we're doing at solving those issues, the fact that none of the sustainable development goals have been met, the fact that we can't do nuclear disarmament, despite how important it is, in fact, we get more countries that have nukes rather than less, and we get new arms races. Every time there's a new technology, you get a kind of inexorable arms race on it. We can't solve the tragedy of the commons issues, and the issues are moving closer to catastrophic risk, eminent catastrophic risk. And it's like, okay, maybe our problems are such that we need new problem-solving mechanisms. And it kind of makes sense that the founding fathers, as smart as they were when they were coming up with a social coordination system for the US at the time, they didn't have these problems. Right. They, they, when they were thinking of the Second Amendment, they weren't thinking of thermite weaponized drones. Like it's just a different thing in terms of um, catastrophe level weapons that individuals, non-state actors can have. Like, what, what do you do with that? Um, and they weren't thinking of a satellite based IoT surveillance state. And what, how do you deal with that kind of thing? So 
there, so if you just try to apply that system, you'll find as brilliant as it was and adequate at the time, it also categorically fails. And the same is true when the Scottish Enlightenment was doing theory of markets. They didn't have these issues to deal with. When <laughs> so the biggest company possible, the asymmetry between that and the individual was nothing like the asymmetry it is now. And, and limits of growth planetarily weren't a thing. And uh, a financial services sector that was running on AI high-speed trading wasn't a thing. And um, the same with like Marx's critique of that didn't have to deal with this. And even the Bretton Woods world that says, oh, shit, we have to deal with the bomb. That's a new thing. And so we can never have war again between the major countries. The Bretton Woods world right after World War II didn't have to deal with these complex of issues. And so fundamentally what um, you know we were kind of recognizing in this is that the problem scape of the world currently has to be addressed for life to be able to continue because the risks are actually catastrophic and increasing in number and probability as time goes on. And they are not being adequately solved through the types of approaches, through either business or individual governments or IGOs or nonprofits. They're just, they're not being solved adequately through those processes. And for the most part, our problem solving processes either don't solve the problems or they solve a narrow problem and externalize harm somewhere else in the process. And so the major problem that needs solved is that our problem-solving processes are inadequate to the problems we face. So what are the new problem-solving processes? What are the new coordination processes that civilization needs to have to be safe stewards of the level of power that full globalization and exponential tech gives us? Um, and so, you know, when you think about like the Scottish Enlightenment was good thinking on this idea of theory of markets and that thinking ended up becoming the basis of new social systems. Uh, Marxist thinking became the basis of new social systems, the Federalist Papers and the kind of thinking that uh, of on social issues in the early formation of the American democracy gave rise to a social system. We're working on an analysis of the problems that the world faces that is deep enough and detailed enough, both in how the problems interconnect, why they haven't been able to be successfully solved and what's generating them, that it gives insight into what adequate problem-solving processes would look like as the next phase of kind of social organization. And that if we don't want that social organization to be imposed, some people get it and now are gonna impose by force this more enlightened thing on everybody, which is itself a fail case, right? The impositional government, we would say, is is a fail case of a different kind, then the, it, it has to be commensurate with the ideas of an open society, even though it'd be a more advanced type of open society, meaning that the government derives its power from the, con, or the governance process derives its power from the consent of the governed, right? That the people are actually the, as Franklin said, the, the depository of the power. Well, that means that the people have to understand the issues well enough and want these new problem-solving mechanisms and be capable of participating with it. Well, that is a kind of cultural enlightenment that requires people developing a lot of capacities to make sense of the world and to have high-quality conversations with others and to have effective problem-solving, which requires a change in value that would even have them invest in that mm. and in the development of new capacities. So what is, a what is the necessary current kind of cultural enlightenment that could give rise to new problem-solving processes and institutions that could solve the problem space that we're facing now and usher us into a high-tech, digital, global world that works and doesn't drive catastrophic risk. Those are the things that we're exploring and trying to help advance in this project.
Well, I think you've very eloquently described some of the problems that we're facing, and we're going to certainly get into those and also the need for this to happen because what we're seeing right now is it's kind of this transition point. We're in this interesting bardo where we're somewhere still riding on some constructs and systems that used to work in the old times under different circumstances and situations and are starting to fail and starting to collapse. And the way that everything is working now is somewhat urgent, I think to say is, uh, and that might even be a euphemism. So let's start getting into this and start talking about the potential solutions. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned was uh, the importance of the epistemic commons, you know, and the epistemic commons, epistemic meaning pertaining to knowledge, commons meaning available to everybody. The places where we are able to access knowledge are now being it. This is now, I think you referred to it as uh, the the hyper the hyper battlefield right now of non kinetic warfare. Everybody is using the commons as a way to manipulate people to actually change information. It's become something that no longer is trusted, and for good reason. So let's let's talk about that. Let's go into first of all, the importance of the epistemic commons, and then what is happening to the epistemic commons? Yeah, there's actually quite a few things that you said there. So when you were talking about the battlefield of non-kinetic warfare, just to clarify, for some people, if the term isn't obvious, kinetic warfare means bullets and bombs and physical warfare. Um, uh, Von Clausewitz said, war is politics by other means. And so you can say that everything other than kinetic warfare is politics, meaning it is a, uh, a battle between the interests of various groups. But you can also start to recognize that when those groups identify each other as rivals fundamentally and will use whatever kind of capacity they have to make a win over their rival, that it's just non-kinetic warfare. So that we can think of economic warfare when you're trying to corner the market on the thing, you're trying to you know, sanctions and, uh, whatever you can think of embargoes. Yeah. You can think of, uh, diplomatic and political warfare. You can think about narrative and information warfare. How do we control the narrative? So more people vote for our side or believe in our country and its patriotic purpose or whatever it is, or our religion and advance a holy war is not a new thing, right? (laughs) Narrative warfare is a very old thing. Sun Tzu talks about it. The 36 stratagems in ancient Chinese military theory are basically all about it. But the modern age gives us narrative warfare capacities via the web and social media that are really radically unheard of. Um, So we would actually say that like the most fundamental warfare occurring is economic it's backed up by the possibility of kinetic warfare, but the front where most of the activity is happening is cultural war, narrative war, info war. If you control what people believe is true, then they will think that they are self-governing and you believe what they, you affect what they believe about what is meaningful. They will think that they are freely self-governing towards a purpose that happens to be a purpose that other people helped to engineer. Um, and so let me, let me challenge, let me challenge something that you said real quick. You, you said, that the fundamental warfare that we're experiencing is economic warfare, which to my mind, and just to clarify, that would mean like US versus, you know, China in this kind of grappling with what the world economy is actually where the balances are, are shifted and scaled. To me, it seems like that would mean that there was a coherent 
United States that was, I think there may actually be a coherent China, but that's because they have a different regime. But that would imply that there's a coherent United States that actually cares about something other than their own political career. And I'm not convinced that there is any actually any actual cohesion between the United States actually giving a shit about anything other than individuals giving shit about themselves at the time that we're in right now. So who who is the actual actor in warfare is a very good question. Right. Is the U.S. a coordinated and coherent monolithic actor or are individual people in positions mm. of lobbying power, legislative power, political power, making decisions that largely have to do with CYA, cover your ass kind of stuff for themselves and ladder climbing and bonus structures and whatever, and kind of actually debasing the integrity of the commons, in this case, the country? Are they making party wins that hurt the country as a whole? Even if it like, let's increase the narrative rhetoric about how bad the other party is. So we make a win, even though we're driving countrymen against each other so much that the country actually loses its coherence and ability to do anything in the presence of other geopolitical powers rising very rapidly who don't have that issue. That's um, what I see. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's a school of libertarian thought called public choice theory that gives a very good critique of the idea of representative democracy. And it's not, it doesn't, it's not offering a good solution, but we just have to know the critique, which is mm -hmm. the representative in a position of government is still a individual economic actor themselves. And especially if they have term limits, they're going to get out and do something else afterwards. And especially because there's, the position of being a representative it has limited economic return, but they're regulating industries that have huge economic potential. And they're supposed to largely regulate in a way that decreases some of the economic possibilities that would otherwise be predatory, right? You no, know, you're not going to dump that pollution there. You have to process it in a more expensive way or whatever it is. And so the and kind of no matter what the representative does, half of everybody won't like them and almost nobody will know what they really did when you have a system that becomes this opaque and complicated. So whether they fuck the whole in virtue signal or really authentically serve the people, they'll be kind of equally liked and disliked most of the time. Right. And nobody will really be able to see the accounting. And so how do you actually bind their interests to being a representative of the whole rather than a representative of their own self-interest so that they check the market rather than the market capture the regulatory process that's supposed to check it? The fundamental idea in a liberal democracy is, okay, we're not going to try to have the state run everything the way that a communist structure might. We're going to let the market run things because all the ideas of why we like markets, it's a decentralized system and the supply and demand is kind of a collective intelligence. When there's more desire for something, the demand goes up, which creates a basis for supply to occur emergently. And then the rational actors will choose the best product or service, at the best price, like all of that kind of market theory. So we'll let the market do that thing. And it has less total impositional force than a state trying to do it. But we don't do laissez-faire pure market with no state because there will be a market for really bad things. Like we can have a market for organ harvesting and we can have a market for uh, sex trade and whatever kinds of things. And it could be profitable to cut down all the trees and there's no national forest left or kill all the fish or whatever it is. So a lot of law, organized crime, whatever, right? A lot, but it wouldn't be crime. <laughs> There would be no, no force checking it other than uh, competing organized crimes. Um, so the idea. Well, I mean, you could you could presumably have, you know, law, but with radical economic 
libertarianism, right? Like you can't hurt other people, the environment being the indirect way to hurt other people. So I suppose if you are making a libertarian, I don't think you're saying that, you know, that there isn't an argument for a different type of libertarian belief in which you protect the commons that are the earth, not the epistemic commons, but the actual logistical, physical commons of our shared mother. And you also protect each other, you know, but also leave everything completely laissez-faire. And and I don't know, I'm not advocating that. When you mention um, law, the topic of enforcement comes up. So who is the you that could do the thing? And if the enforcement doesn't have asymmetric capacity to those who are violating it, it breaks. So rule of law is based on the concept of a monopoly of violence. And the military force and the police force are the idea of who is a safe holder of a monopoly of violence to be able to institute rule of law. So here, I'm not saying that it's accurate, but the kind of foundational idea, and it's accurate enough that it's worth understanding, the foundational idea Mm -hmm. of why a liberal democracy of this kind is the market on its own will do some things really well, but some predatory stuff. So you want something to check it, but the thing that checks it has to be more powerful than it or it doesn't work. Right. And, um, but then the question is what is checking it, right? And so in in a market, Let's say that we even started out T equals zero. Everybody has the exact same amount of money. It would never happen that way, but let's pretend that we did. Pretty soon, you'd have a power law distribution of wealth. It just always ends up occurring that way because some people get ahead better because of better capacities, luck, whatever it is. And then those increased financial capacities make it easier to make more money. You make interest on interest. You gain interest on debt, You know that kind of thing. So those principle takes over and it gets even more exacerbated. So when you get a power law distribution of wealth, how do you have anything like representation or justice for these people when these people can put everybody in their employment and like that? Well, the idea is you need something even more powerful than the top of the market, and that's the state. And so we're going to give it monopoly of violence, but it has to be representing the people as a whole. So the commons, the collective, everybody is going to be. So this is why we want a government of, for, and by the people. And that the basis of law, which is the only thing that monopoly of violence will back up, is the collective ethics of the people, right? The the values of the people that get to come through some kind of discussion and voting process turn into the basis or the jurisprudence basis of law itself. The key thing is that the purpose of the state is to check the predatory aspects of the market while leaving the healthy aspects of the market. Mm -hmm. But that only works if the people check the state, Mm -hmm. right? And when you look at the structure of the constitution, it was largely around how do we make sure that the state doesn't become a runaway thing and that the people actually check it while giving it enough power that it checks the otherwise predatory aspects of market that would make feudalism again. Because if you don't have a state and you have a power law distribution of wealth, you end up getting something like feudalism. And so uh, this is why George Washington famously said I'm going to paraphrase, but the number one aim of the federal government is the comprehensive education of every single citizen in the science of government. And it's it's so huge, right, that that was the founding idea that he was saying that because mm-hmm. he didn't say the number one aim is to institute rule of law. And he didn't say it's to protect the borders, right, or monetary creation, because if the number one aim is to protect the borders, it can become a military dictatorship very effectively. Sure. If the number one aim is to institute rule of law, it can become an oppressive dictatorship very easily, a police state. The only way it stays a democracy of form by the people is if the number one goal is the comprehensive education of everyone in science of government was the term of art at the time, 
what are the principles about how humans coordinate with each other that everyone would need to know to intelligently participate in their own sovereign self-governance? So they have to understand history and political theory and game theory and coordination theory and all those kinds of things. Now, you can see that most people don't have any sense in the U.S. today that they are part of government at all. They will complain about government as if it's something out there. But if you don't participate actively in your own governance, you are de facto consenting to be ruled, right, by whoever it is that does show up to do that thing. So this is where the epistemic commons comes in, right? That was a quote about that the number one aim of the federal government has to be to support the integrity of the epistemic commons, the process by which everyone comes to understand things. So specifically, education and the fourth estate, the education by which people could learn how to think, could have enough basis in the understanding of how economic motives work and how coordination works and those types of things. Uh, where they don't come up with dumb propositions that have already been tried and figured out because they just didn't understand it, how rule of law works. The, that education has to be foundational. And the fourth estate is what is the information about what's happening today that we're going to need to make choices on in an unbiased or bias corrected way that the people have both the current information and the ability to process the information so that they can participate in deciding what are the right propositions and crafting propositions. Before the lobbyists, the idea was the people would actually craft the proposition in a town hall talking to each other, right? Um, and so it's the education and the fourth estate are prerequisite institutions for democracy to work or anything like a republic or an open society to work. If those erode, then you could not possibly have people participating in collective effective governance because they don't know how to think about the issues. If we ask average people in the US today about almost any of the issues that government is having to govern on from a DOE policy on microgrid stability for the electrical grid or uh, nuclear first strike policy, if an issue came with another nuclear country or whatever, like I've never even thought about those fucking things. I, I don't know. And yeah, we're, too, we're too busy worrying about you know, gay rights in, in some country where someone's arguing about it or some other kind of red herring that is being thrown out that triggers some tribal or kind of gut reaction response instead of talking about the actual real serious challenges that are, that are being faced. And that's, you know, certainly just one of the many aspects that you're mentioning is that the, the things that we're debating are actually, in large case, you know, a lot of things that are not the things that are actually the the boot that is you know with its the soul on our throat you know what i mean you mentioned okay so now we're going to come back to the economic warfare thing and when you say gay rights gay rights as a subset of the different types of highly polarizing issues and identity polarizing identity politics type issues um are a great way to have a population largely stay divided against each other and not notice the macro structures that are most problematic, particularly things associated. Okay, I'm gonna share a, a construction here. A poor white person and a poor black person have more in common with the possibility space of their life than either of them have in common with the billionaire. And they have differences, like important differences, and depending upon where they live, more significant. So, uh, and so one could start to say, well, all of our lives would get better if we had better economic, like fundamentally, we had better access to resources. If our kids went to better schools, we had better healthcare. We, these are economic issues. 
we're working two jobs or whatever it is to barely pay for a crappy house, can't spend time with our kids, so we can't parent well. Like these are economic issues. And then there are some people who at the top of the power law distribution own almost all the wealth. That if that was differently allocated, it would create a very different quality of life for everybody. The degree to which races continue to stay focused against each other or LGBTQ against cis, hetero, whatever, or partisanship, left versus right, is the degree to which they don't recognize that they have some deeper commonalities that have deeper structural drivers that if they that would require some kind of unity to actually address. Um, so that is a classic trap. That's a classic narrative warfare trap. What is it? And and this is not just by those in the top economic class within the within the country. Also, if I'm another country that wants to not have the U.S. be dominant for, say, real reasons, because they're doing political geopolitical bullying or whatever, or because we actually want to win the geopolitical great game of power. I'm not going to take the U.S. on head on the biggest military in the world. I'm not going to do an attack that doesn't have plausible deniability. But if I can find existing fault lines in the system where people are sensitive to be turned against each other, and I can just poke on that where the people turn against each other more, how you turn the larger enemy against itself is a classic military strategy for yep. to for dealing with a larger opponent. So now fucking Facebook does it on its own without even having that intention. It's not that Facebook has a conspiratorial intention or political intention. It made the people who wanted QAnon stuff get more of that. And the people who wanted Antifa stuff get more of that based on the algorithm that was optimizing time on site. And that algorithm, you mentioned, you mentioned the strength of that algorithm. I mean, you told a story where, you know, Gary Kasparov lost to deep blue, which is the chess algorithm. And that beat a chess grandmaster. And he knew he was facing off against the computer. Well, the algorithms that are running social media are more advanced than the algorithm that beat Gary Kasparov. And we don't even really know that we're squaring up against him. I mean, exactly. that's just a, that just is a mind blowing example of what we're actually dealing with. And I think the people there, they're just letting it run, you know, based right. on it's getting more attention, more attention equals more ads served, more ads served equals more money. And it's just, the thing is just running and it's kind of running out of control at whatever cost by whatever means necessary. So most people, their time on site doesn't get maximized by showing them complex, nuanced arguments. They, they bounce, right? They get to an article and there's a complex, nuanced argument, they bounce. If there's a clickbaity title, they're more likely to click on it. So there is a actual incentive for salaciousness. And then if it's short enough, if it's put into a soundbite or a tweet, right, that, that somebody can get a hit without hitting their increasingly low attention span that wants more dopaminergic hits per minute, <laughs> then they are more likely to engage in it. And really all they're doing is they're a mimetic processing machine in that moment that's saying, does this meme fit with or not fit with my existing meme complex? If not, reject. If so, accept and propagate. Except and also the discomfort. There's an intense discomfort when things disagree with those beliefs that we hold in our identity, that ego construct inside of us. That is like basically getting a paper cut. Every time we see something that disagrees, it's getting an ego paper cut. Every time we see anything that disagrees with something we believe because we're so attached and we've assumed that as part of our identity. So we don't want that. We don't want paper cuts. Ah, but a nice little dopamine hit, a nice little, you know, little bang of a uh, bang of the neurochemical we love so much. So we'll go for more of that. So of course, you know, so of that course thing it works. You just mentioned, right? 
this is not the highest angels of our nature. This is not the highest potential of being human. It's some of the lowest, right? That wants to be right, whether we are or not, that is uncomfortable with uncertainty and wants artificial certainty, right? So is to feel secure. <clears throat> we can see through the history of the world, people were willing to kill and die for religions where they were sure that God's name was such and such. And most of those gods don't even exist anymore. Like nobody really cares about Thor or Apollo or whatever. And they were the kill and die over certainty for those types of things. And so we can see how powerful certainty as a driver is. And we can see how historically is a, it almost always looks wrong. And so does everybody else's certainty that isn't on our side. And so those are things we want to overcome, not drive and make worse in the same way that everybody has addictive tendencies. But to make a healthy society, you want to help people overcome addictive tendencies, not push on them and make them worse. And yet, if I'm a business and I... Let's say I have a fiduciary responsibility to my shareholders to maximize profit. I'm a public business, right? Then I maximize the value of my business by increasing the total addressable market and increasing the lifetime value per customer. And I increase the total addressable market by trying to make products or services that are relevant to everybody, to increasingly more people. And I increase the lifetime value of a customer by having them want to keep coming back to whatever the thing that I do is. And there's no way to do that better than addiction. And so the supply side motive benefits from addiction. The, the society, and this is where we understand that war makes GDP go up, right? Military spending makes GDP go uh -huh. up. Sick people spending a lot of money on medical care makes in pharma industry makes GDP go up. GDP is a very, very bad indicator for well-being because total amount of money flowing through an economy has a lot to do with things that are managing bad problems. So the problems actually make it go up. Uh, but the demand side does not have the coordination that the supply side has because you and me and all Google users aren't getting together and coordinating as effectively as Google is with itself. So even though we're the same, like the total amount of attention or money flowing from demand into supply is the same in aggregate, the demand is disaggregated and the supply is coordinated, right? So you have an asymmetric warfare. So then the supply side says, I can manufacture demand. This was where theory of market started to break. This was one of the key places where theory of market yeah. started to break. Because theory of markets was people want real shit that will improve the quality of their life. And they'll make rational decisions between the various products or services available. So the fact that people want something, they're willing to pay something for it, creates an evolutionary niche for others to try to create supply. And the best product or service at the best price will win. Well, obviously, all the behavioral econ stuff that shows we don't make rational choices, particularly when we have the the ability to have emotionally manipulative advertising that's as effective as it is, that hacks status desires. If I don't have that thing, I'm not part of the trend, the in-group, or whatever. Um, that now get to be AI optimized, split test, split tested AI optimized, that mostly is a drive dissatisfaction to then give them a hit that they got something. But also the supply side started to recognize I can make people want shit they never wanted. And I can manufacture demand. And so manufactured demand now broke the idea that the market is actually a collective intelligence system of things that are actually meaningful to increase quality of people's lives. And the best manufactured demand is addiction, of course. And the supply side has much more ability to coordinate that motive. That's the AI in employment of it compared to the people who don't even know that they are that there's a rivalrous game for their own attention happening. And also there's the problem because... Listen, I mean, we're having this conversation about 
you know, Facebook global and the challenges that it's actually perpetrating upon our society and the ills of it. But I still have an Instagram account and I put a lot of beautiful ideas and things and I reach a lot of people and I get dozens of messages every day. Thank you, Aubrey, for what you put out. This really means a lot to me. And so I'm in one in one level participating because that is the place. This has now become the medium by which I can express ideas that are helpful. So that becomes this cost benefit analysis. I'm contributing to something that is overall detrimental to the society. But if I don't contribute, then I lose my ability to share my gift, which is actually contributing positively to society. So they have me in this, in a bind and they have many, many people in a bind in that way because of the, they've just gotten so much momentum, you know, and there's really nothing that can compete with it. That's so when we developed antitrust law in the US and many countries were developing antitrust law to make sure that, um, and monopoly laws, there, it was a pre-digital world and we didn't have Metcalf network type dynamics. And so those weren't factored into the way that we thought about it. Something only became a monopoly typically if they did some work to very actively in criminal ways, suppress competition, and then even get government support for how they did that thing. But in network dynamics, where you have a Metcalf law type process, meaning that the value of the network is proportional to the number of people on it. So as more yeah. people join, it becomes more valuable. Then once you get above a certain escape velocity, it's more people are going to be joining that thing relative to any other thing, because as more people join it, it continues to become a stronger attractor. And so you end up getting monopolies that are not a government monopoly of the previous type, but it is a nothing else is going to emerge. You have a power law distribution of within a domain, there's Amazon and then there's every other marketplace, right? right. You, there's Facebook and then there's all the other kind of social media. There's YouTube and then there's all the other video channels. You end up getting that kind of power law distribution within those verticals. And so that is functionally a monopoly. It's a monopoly that is bigger than countries. Countries have a very hard time trying to regulate something like that because countries move very slow relative to the speed of corporations, especially once the company countries have decayed as much as ours have. And the corporations have the money to keep paying for lobbying that is and lawyers that are very effective. And, and when it's this kind of thing and affecting public opinion in a way that would be critical to the basis of changing law itself, right? So um so there it becomes obligate once it becomes large enough where if you choose not to participate with it, you're really not participating in society. It became an obligate thing. And mm -hmm. so now we have to say, okay, that's very powerful. Is there a way that it is bound to the good of society or is it just unchecked power? And what would check that power? Anytime a new power comes, it's really powerful. We have to say, does it differentially serve some over others? It does it, is it, tending to the good of the whole. If it isn't, how do we check it? And that's a core question with all of the exponential technologies is they make rapidly more power and much faster than any previous technology did that. And they are not being developed mostly for kind of comprehensive commons uh, integrity as their, as their basis. Right. And, and that's, you know, that's, I think, a key challenge here, because of course, as we set up, as the forefathers set up the government, they understood the absolute necessity of checks and balances. And this is that thing that we've been talking about, but the, this is just a, a non-governmental actor with, and, and a lot of times, you know, people think of these corporations as a bunch of evil people plotting, 
to do bad things to the world. I really don't see that when you actually get in there. My little brother works for Facebook. He's not trying to fuck the world. You know, he's just trying to do things he's like recruiting different employees. And he's, you know, he likes the lunches that they serve and he keeps inviting me over there to campus to, you know, go grab a lunch with them. And, and it's like that, you know, as you even go up, even in pharmaceutical companies, you know, there's in some ways, I think there's this kind of just, um, deniable, plausible deniable. They just don't really want to look at what's happening and they just kind of look the other way. But it really seems like the organism of the corporation itself is an entity. And if we really look at that as an entity, that entity has a primary objective. The collective entity of a corporation has a primary objective, and it is to maximize profits by whatever means necessary, right? That is the that is the prerogative of the corporate entity. So you have to have the people then who are the angels who are willing to collectively within that, you know, be more powerful than the entity itself and move beyond their own profit motives. And even to the self-destruction and annihilation of the entity itself, when it gets too powerful. And that's asking a lot from individuals who to get to that level of power typically are running from some kind of trauma, dealing with some kind of validation complex and, you know, the desire for importance and love from the world, which they didn't get from their parents or God or whatever other thing they needed. So they needed in other external ways, chasing the hungry ghost of all external validation and all different power games to try and get that. And so that's what we end up seeing is we end up seeing these, these entities rise that when the entity itself can be evil, but the people within it are probably, you know, they have some culpability, of course, because they're not all rallying together to address the challenges. But uh, but it's a lot more nuanced than than I think a lot of people think. Um, most issues of evil are. Yeah. The the fact that almost all media that we can consume from cartoons on is usually a good guy versus bad guy in our culture shows how deeply we're conditioning that set of mimetic tropes. And most of the time, the who the good guy is and who the bad guy is, is relatively cut and dry. We celebrate when the bad guy gets it at the end and good guy makes it identify with. And this is good for socially uh, conditioning the mindset that will socially support war or something like that. But it's not good for actually understanding how the world works, where it's not that common that the bad guy thinks they're a bad guy. Um, extraordinarily rare. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't even know. I mean, maybe some serial killers, but like, it's so fucking rare. Even the worst actors of our time still had some justification that they were doing some good. Even Thanos. And then look at the story of Thanos, right? Wipes out half of the population for the greater good of the universe was his rationalization. I mean, obviously he's a fictional character, but we know we see characters like that, that always seem to have some idea that they're doing some good for the world in some way. Where they they're doing good for someone, but they're in a forcing function. There's a, so right. having a conversation with uh, somebody about geopolitics the other day, and they were talking about um, Putin and somebody there had a lot of respect for Putin as a global strategist and world leader and someone who uh, kept Russia from being more degraded by external um, capitalist forces after the wall came down. And some people thought he was a particularly evil guy. And I'm like, well, if you're in his position and 
NATO forces are trying to uh, set up military bases right on your border and running propaganda narrative campaigns against your people and, you know, on and on. Do you do some what look like kind of evil things because you are feel obligated that you have to do that in order to protect the people? You take Israel and the Golan Heights. It's like that seemed kind of fucked up that they took the Golan Heights. If they don't have it, they have no defensible airspace from people that are sending missiles to them. So you say, well, you shouldn't have done that and you should just have no defensible airspace. Um, so if there was one tribe that started tribal warfare, the other tribes died by default if they didn't get good enough at tribal warfare to defend themselves. Mm. So as soon as anybody starts the game of power in that way, it becomes an obligate game for everybody to play or they lose by default. And then this creates a race to the bottom. And then this, this defines the characteristic problems in the world that we have to overcome. These are coordination failures. Both the arms race does anybody want to live in a world filled with autonomous AI drone weapons? No, like I don't think really any generals think that that's a nice world to live in. But is every country that can pursuing that? Absolutely. Because if we don't and somebody else gets there first, they run the whole world. And they either kill all our people or run the world and we don't like their political philosophy or whatever it is. So not only do we have to make them, we have to make them faster than they make them and make the counter weapons and spy on their doing it and lie to their spies. And so then, so that's the arms race, right? And then we're like, well, what if we just made an agreement that nobody makes the AI weapons? How about we come together and make a treaty? How do I know that they're keeping the treaty? How do I know that in an underground black project, they're not building it and I'm keeping my side of the treaty and then they come out and take over the world. Fuck it. I can't actually ensure that they aren't keeping the treaty. And most gonna... likely, and most likely we know that that's the way that governments work. That's the way that we've always done it, right? Like this is the way, look at Game of Thrones, right? It's like, yes, absolutely. We honor this treaty. It, but it's it's not the case. Like you look at history and rarely have we seen that we haven't evolved to a point where that is a reality, where the noble virtues of honoring your word and a good, you know, healthy handshake really mean something, you know, never has been. In, in that kind of, at that kind of scale. So it's sensible to not trust so that that's going to happen. So the people who've paid attention and understand real politic are like, okay, your treaty is a cute idea and we're going to build our AI weapons <laughs> and we're, we're going to, and either we'll sign the treaty, lie and say that we're keeping it, try to lie to your spies that are finding out if we are or not and spy on you to see if you're doing it or not, or we won't even bother doing it. Right. Like those are the, the ways that it ends up going. And this is the same of like, why have we not done nuclear deproliferation? Who wants to be the chump that gives up their last nuke first? Because um, what, what happens to them? They give up their last nuke first and then the other person defects on the deal. How do we know they gave up their last nuke and they aren't hiding one? This. And so how do we know that the one that they aren't hiding isn't faster so they can win at first strike because they were doing hypersonic missile stuff. Fuck. We have to actually keep racing with a nuclear arms race to build faster and faster hypersonics to win the first strike game. That's we're stuck in that thing, right? Very largely the world's stuck in that thing. And it has been historically, it's just, it wasn't until world war two that existential risk or catastrophic risk for the whole world was a possibility because our tech wasn't big enough to be that damaging to the world. It's important to get it for the history of the world, existential risk to civilizations always was a real thing. There is no more 
Roman Empire as it was, or Egyptian Empire, or Aztec, or Maya, or like the thing that we understand about civilizations that they have in common is they all have a lifespan and they fall. And so that was an existential risk, a collapse of civilization for those people. And that always happened, but it was always local, right? And they happen for reasons that are not that different than the ones we're looking at today. They overuse the environmental resources and stopped being able to feed the people adequately. Like that was a very common thing that um, outstripping environmental resources is a many thousands of year old issue. And or they got so big that they couldn't create coordination amongst all of the people. And then they couldn't also protect all of their border space. And then they got overtaken by a smaller rival. Or they got so powerful that infighting amongst each other was the most profitable thing to do rather than fight somebody else. And then the thing decayed. These are all civilizational decay models. Uh, Joseph Tainter in the Collapse of Complex Societies and uh, Baudrillard in Simulation and Simulacra and other People address how does civilization decay? How do institutions decay? Which is a super important topic. And sometimes they got taken over by an, ex an external military. And so they had to keep the arms race of their military capacities, right? Which also meant the total size of their population so they could lose people in war, which also meant a sustainability issue for the environment. Um, harvest more resources to support larger populations to win at wars of others that are doing the same thing or lose by default. With World War II, we get to the first place where we have now a catastrophic weapon that's so big that if the major empires fight and use it, it can destroy everything for everybody. That was never Actually the case. Sure destruction, yeah. And so when you study history, like most of history is studying the way we commonly study is the study of warfare between adjacent empires, right? The European history is that the warring regions period of China is that you can study that, the this is, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, the central Hindu text is this warfare between brothers and cousins. And um, so for the first time in the world with World War II, the major empires couldn't fight kinetic wars. And that never did. There was never a time where they figured out how to not fight for a long time. And so <clears throat> the answer to that was the Bretton Woods world, right? The Bretton Woods world came together and said, OK, we can't fight wars. How do we make sure we don't war? Well, national governments alone aren't enough to prevent war, as World War I and World War II showed us, because the nations can optimize their own interests at the expense of each other. So we can have now world wars, but our tech is so big that these you can't really, nobody wins these wars. So we need something beyond national governments. You need some intergovernmental organizations. So we make the United Nations, the World Bank, the IMF, the, all those types of agreements. And the idea was, let's do this thing called globalization where we have these supply chains where the, the computer that we're talking on was made in six continents, right? No country could make the computer in terms of the mining of the raw materials, the processing of them, the hardware development, the software development. And so as a result, we all like the computer. So we don't want to bomb someone that's part of that supply chain that we depend upon. Sure. So let's do these complicated supply chains where we're so economically interdependent on each other that we don't want to fight. And where we're, we can grow the whole world's economy so fast through this globalization thing that everybody can get ahead without having to take each other's shit. The, if the game is positive sum enough, we can all get ahead without having to take each other's stuff. Whereas if it's not growing and I want to get ahead, I got to take somebody else's stuff and now we're in rivalry. And so that was fundamentally the set of ideas in the Bretton Woods world. Fast forward 75 years and you get to a point where 
that rate of growth, it means extraction of unrenewable resources faster than they replenish themselves from the earth and then turning them into waste, putting them back in the earth faster than they can be processed, starts hitting planetary boundaries along lots of axes. You have species extinction across the board. You have overfishing issues across the board. You have not just climate change, but dead zones in the ocean from nitrogen runoff and peak phosphorus and uh, mining waste issues and uh, all those types of things. You're like, okay, so we don't get to keep doing exponential growth of the economy connected to an unsustainable linear materials economy on a finite planet. And we're actually running right up against the boundaries of the ability to keep doing that thing. And when the world is this interconnected, it's also very fragile because something can break in one area and you get cascading breaks across the whole space. We can have an issue in Wuhan and we can have breaks in the supply chain of food and fertilizer and fundamental things across countries all across the world. So we're looking at now fragility of the ecosystem and fragility of the technosphere and the economy. And so we're like, okay, now, now we need new, a new thing. So the world before World War II was one thing. After World War II, it was this other thing, but that system is now ending. It can't continue that way because it creates its own catastrophic risks and fragilities. So how do we do global cooperation? All those previous empires that failed were local, so they could fail and it wasn't a failure of everything. But since that meant that they produced the things they needed to live, now no country produces the things it needs to live. The global supply chains produce the whole thing. So we have the first truly global civilization, but we don't know how to make civilizations that don't fail. (laughs) And so we have to do things we've never done in history. We have to figure out how to deal with differences that don't involve war. We have to figure out how to deal with people's desire to get ahead that doesn't involve exponential growth ongoingly. We have to figure out how to make a civilization that can evolve and regenerate itself that doesn't self-collapse. These are the unique challenges of this particular time. And I think really the solution then goes back to where we were originally, you know, talking about is the epistemic commons where people are actually getting real reasonable information that they can trust from, you know, good actors, or at least they have the awareness to be able to sort through the melee that we're kind of of getting fed right now and actually wield power by collectively, you know, voting. And if we do, you know, trust the democratic process, which has its own problems, but ultimately, like if we are informed, we can presumably vote people into office, which presumably can impose these changes that we need but it all depends on us actually seeing through the haze and the and the things that is just getting thicker and thicker and thicker and preventing us from actually seeing anything reasonable and also creating this kind of political system which is what i see now and what i feel is this kind of political nihilism because we have two parties who are pretending to be different but they're so similar in everything that they end up doing that the actual choices seem inconsequential. So it's like, fuck it. You know, it's an old libertarian trope, same shit, different piles, right? Like doesn't really matter. And, and of course, you know, I respect that there are certain differences and certain things and, and whatever. And some of those things are, you know, important arguably, but for the most part, everybody's kind of doing the same shit and it's not really helping either way, you know, as we go. So then it ends up being like, all right, politics aren't the way which is just again retreating to this political nihilism which is not the which is not going to work because then there's literally no solution so what you're talking about is actually cleaning up you know cleaning up the epistemic commons the ability for us to access information and then reinvigorating faith 
in a political system by making demands that politics actually work so that we actually care about it, right? I mean, that to me, it seems like it, I don't see another, I don't see another solution here. Yes. Yes. Um, I'll say something divergent first and then come back. I, I was just smiling because I was remembering a conversation I had with a friend the other day. And he said, you know, there's a big chunk of uh, Americans who kind of hold it, not consciously, but intuitively, that the founding fathers and Moses went up the hill together and came down with the tablets and the constitution was on them. And it's it's this kind of like, um, they're treated like scripture, right? Treated like anything that you can do to change it is definitely making it worse, which shows both a good respect for the wisdom of it, which was actually really important, shows how much the attempts to change it have been in bad faith or, or at least ill-informed, but also doesn't acknowledge how fundamentally different the world is today than then and how well-formed they were at the time, given the capacities, and yet also simultaneously inadequate. And this is where one of the deepest dialectics, when we think about left and right or the, the various ways political polarization occurs, one of the dialectics, there's a lot of ways to talk about this, is traditionalism and progressivism. And the traditional impulse says, let's conserve the conservative impulse. Let's conserve the old institutional wisdom, insights, et cetera, that have worked for a long time because of something, whether it was a religious system or a uh, political system, if something got us here and most of the civilizations failed, most of the religions failed, most of the, there's some evidence that that thing was effective and maybe we don't even understand it as well as we think. So we break it and it was doing something that we didn't know. So there's almost like a intuitive sense of conserving the wisdom that is in that thing, right? And some people almost intuitively, they wouldn't even frame it that way. They have that sense. And then there's a progressive intuition. And the progressive intuition says, we're dealing with novel problems that we have not dealt with before. And evolution moves forward. It doesn't move backwards. New adaptive capacities based on new environments, opportunities, stimuli. So we need to actually rethink situations and come up with new novel innovations and insights. Obviously, all of tech has that focus, right? We're coming up with new and science has that focus. So can we apply the kind of... The, the fact that the technosphere is changing means we might need different ways of thinking about and governing it. And can we apply that same kind of progressive insight that we're doing in science to our social systems? Those need to not be in a fight. Those need to not be in a debate, <laughs> but in a dialectic that says, yeah. where do the previous systems and previous thinking have real wisdom that we have not, if we haven't been good enough students of history, we don't understand as well as we think. So we criticize it as irrelevant, old, dumb, whatever, because we didn't go through a war. We don't actually know. We don't understand real politics from an embodied experience because we live in a, in a rich, abundant time, not the difficult time or whatever it is, right? So we break the thing down and then we realize that we fucked ourselves because we didn't understand it well enough. How do we make sure we understand it well enough that we conserve what should be conserved? And then how do we understand both new possibilities that can make this better than could have been made by the wisest people at the time and new problems that need new things and create new progressive insights that are fully logically consistent with the previous ones that are worth conserving, right? How do we do that together? That dialectical process of, and it, there's a similar one for individualism and collectivism, right? We don't mm -hmm. want the individual advantaging themselves in a way where they're ruining the commons and um, in rivalrous dynamics with other people. We also don't want a way that 
prioritizing the commons ends up being oppressive for individuals. So how do we make a situation where you have collective structures like systems of education and healthcare and economic incentive that condition better lives for the people that are born into it, but better not meaning just dependent on the system, better meaning more sovereign and self-directing. And then how do you develop people that also have a civic virtue? So they in turn work to improve the system. So you have a virtuous cycle of more individualism and more collectivism simultaneously, you know, more benefit to the individual and more harmony between the people in the commons. And so one of the key things at defining things in the kind of to get past culture war, narrative war, is to take the values that different sides are speaking to and recognize that there is some true value on both sides that doesn't have to be held as fundamentally dichotomous, but actually is necessarily symbiotic, synergistic, and say, how do we hold the true part of both sides of that dialectic and seek something that is at the level of the synthesis? Yeah. And this is not something that we're seeing happen in our political system to any degree. And I think it's something that we ultimately have to demand, but it's not just the political system. Like you can look at this at a, at another polarized topic, like vegetarianism versus, you know, eating meat and even a carnivore diet, right? There's, there's so much identity wrapped up in each camp that there's virtues to both of these different, both of these different dietary styles, but people are so in, entrenched in their own ideology that it's not a dialectic. It ultimately becomes a heated and you know debate with all kinds of ad hominem attacks and all kinds of different logical fallacies being used and obstruction and, and misinterpretation or interpretation for, to advantage of all different kinds of data and we end up getting in this place where we have that kind of epistemic you know hubris on one hand which is something you talked about where people are very overconfident about what they believe to be true because of the information that they've seen and then other people are like well fuck it we have these experts who know more than i ever will about these different topics and they're all disagreeing so i don't even know what to care about so then you retreat into nihilism and then you end up in either one of these two sides where you're confident and you're sure that you know everything because science said you know or you're like, who knows? Because science is saying this way over this way, or science is saying this way over this way. And this is the, the place that we find ourselves in, in these key important issues. Let's go back to your case of Thanos. Thanos was motivated, at least explicitly, right? Maybe there's other implicit motivation, but explicitly by the desire to serve the universe and life with a utilitarian ethic that says, I'm willing to cause the, the ends justify the means. I'm willing to cause some harm to prevent worse harms. It's a trolley problem calculus, right? And he had a certainty that the universe was going to end and self-terminate if he didn't do that thing. So doing that thing was not only ethically okay, it was ethically obligate because the ethics of inaction for him guaranteed an outcome that was so much more horrible, right? This is now a key thing of why utilitarian ethics can be dangerous. We, of course, need to do utilitarian calculus of saying, well, not just does my action seem intrinsically right, but what will the consequences be? Because, okay, don't ever lie. When the Nazis come to my house and ask if I have any Jews there and I do, I, I lie. I say, no, I have no Jews here. In that moment, the virtue ethic that says don't ever lie is less important than the utilitarian calculus of I would rather lie to the Nazi in this situation than send these people to the slaughter. So, um, so utilitarian calculus is necessary, but it's also not sufficient. It creates real problems. And the main place it creates problems is when we 
believe, pretend that we have more certainty than is actually epistemically warranted about what's going to happen in the future, then, and that's what Thanos had. It was an excessive certainty that he had that the universe would be worse if he didn't do that, that it made it ethically obligate for him to do that thing. So very often we have some argument of, okay, well, the future is definitely going to go this way if I don't act. And that definite is actually unjustified. It's based on some simple rationale that seems unavoidable to us, but how much is in the unknown unknown set that is relevant that we don't know that we aren't factoring Mm -hmm. is the place where we get, that's where the the real critical thing is. So we can't predict weather 10 days out with the very best supercomputing types of capabilities that we have because complex systems are complex, right? That's the, that's the thing to understand. And yet when I'm so certain that such and such is going to happen for civilization, that if I, if I don't, whatever, then the utilitarian calculus can make me do super unethical things where contextually they're actually the only ethical thing. So this is where excessive certainty is extraordinarily dangerous. And you notice that the holy wars were fought based on certainty, not uncertainty. People don't say, I don't know the reality of God. It's an interesting question. I feel humbled by the awe of it. Let me go slaughter some people. It's like, I know for certain. And so I'm willing to go kill and die for that thing. So if we don't overcome the certainty bias, one, we don't learn very well because now you have confirmation bias that just seeks confirmation of the thing you already believe. And it's actually only a depth of curiosity that makes you keep learning well. And two, we actually become dangerous. And particularly so with increased power, exponential tech power. The the thing that should give us a good healthy dose of understanding of the mystery the factors that we cannot factor in which is really the argument that charles eisenstein makes in the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible is it's an argument from his own spiritual gnosis gnosis with you know his knowing with the g this felt sense of the state of inner being the connection that we have to capital s source what you know you can call god but god has a, a lot of connotations to it but it's a felt thing for many of us who've gone through different plant medicine journeys and experiences, this understanding that the universe, the earth, the earth itself is alive and that there is a binding and common force and a wisdom and, and this felt sense of love being the currency that is underpinning everything else. That there's a reason why that's been called the mystery, capital M mystery, because we can't fathom it, but we can tap into it and we can feel it. And so to assume that we can understand what's going to happen with that in play. And this is something we talked briefly about before, you know, the Tao, whatever you want to call it, that is ultimately the mystery to pretend that we know that thing. It's incomprehensible. It it is the ineffable. So there's a, there's a certain humility that we all have to have saying, we actually don't understand more than we do understand. And you can look at it, even if you want to take it out of the spiritual context, look at the bleeding edge of quantum physics and our understanding of what's happening at the subatomic level and the laws of the universe, which are continually evolving. We should have just a a tempered epistemological humility, epistemic humility, which is really one of the solutions you're pointing to. But when you really understand that, that there are the ineffable factors it only, it makes really a lot of sense. Okay. So this is, this is a topic that's on my mind most of the time. We're wanting to encourage 
And we're wanting to develop a culture where people do much better sense-making using rigorous processes while understanding the upper bounds of their own sense-making. And that the upper bounds don't give the kind of absolute certainty that um, before certain kinds of development work, people can be emotionally oriented to want. Um, and so, you know, we, you and I were talking about this uh, uh, previously. The first verse of the Tao Te Ching, this always was so meaningful to me that, so Lao Tzu, whoever that was, is going to write a book of wisdom. And the very first thing in a book of words was the Tao that is nameable is not the eternal Tao. The, the knowledge that is knowable is not the eternal knowledge. And the naming is the creation of the 10,000 things. And the 10,000 things will obscure you from understanding the Tao. So it's like, okay, here's a book about the Tao and you can't do it in words. If you do it in words, that's not the thing. But then finishes the book, right? That's the key insight was it wasn't just the first verse and then nothing else. There's then the rest of the book, mm -hmm. which is saying the words are pointing to something beyond what can be captured in them and see if you can notice what that is. And so it's like, okay, is that just kind of superstitious mumbo jumbo or what is what does that really mean so you're mentioning quantum mechanics so heisenberg's uncertainty principle says we can't know the position and momentum of a quantum particle simultaneously in full the more you know about the position the less you know about the momentum and vice versa that's an upper bound on the knowable itself right it's saying that there is a rigorously unknowable that is at the foundation of all of reality, that there is an upper mm -hmm. bound to knowability that is fucking fundamental. That's important. Then you go to Gödel's theorem in mathematics and Gödel's theorem showed that for any arithmetic set, because David Hilbert was trying to make a, this process of a complete set of mathematics, a fundamental set of math, a standard model from which all math could be derived. And in the process, Kurt Gödel did a proof that showed that that could never happen. One of the most significant things to ever happen in math, because it was, again, an upper bound on knowability. It said for any arithmetic set, I have a finite set of uh, propositions in it. There is some other proposition that is true with that, meaning logically consistent, that can't be derived from a combination of those things. Meaning that there is no finite set that will propagate the entire set. Meaning if the system mm -hmm. is to be consistent it can never be complete and so i can just like position and momentum i can get consistency but not completeness so i'm bound to incompleteness that's why it's called girls incompleteness theorem and that's a huge deal then uh tarski's theorem was a generalization of that from ar arithmetic to all formal logical systems the axioms in the formal logical system can't be proven within the formal logical system they have to be taken so the system can show its own validity, but it can't do soundness. There's something outside of the system necessary to say, does that validity map to what is outside of it? So these are all upper bounds on knowability itself. And so another way of saying it is, you take a, you know all of the study of human medicine before the genome, you're like, wow, there was some really critical shit we didn't even know existed. Then we get the genome, but we don't have the epigenome. We don't have the transcriptome. We don't understand the proteome. We don't understand the exosome, the whatever. So then there's a new thing. We're like, wow, this thing is kind of everything. <laughs> but the, the history of the epistemic hubris is not paying attention enough to how much whole new fields emerge that we didn't mm. know we didn't know before. They were in the unknown, unknown set that answer huge amounts of stuff. 
right? So can I prove that there's nothing that's in the unknown unknown set that is relevant to the topic that I'm looking at? So what that means is I'm studying a thing. I'm studying a body or a cell or a plant or a market or whatever it is. And I try to model it through some small number of variables I can make sense of. There's this thing called supply and demand and rational choices and whatever. So, or there's a thing called mitochondria and ATP and NAD. I'm going to try and model the thing, right? Using what I know of it. And I don't know how tiny a subset that is of what's actually happening. I can't even know how tiny the subset is of the things that are happening. So my model of reality, and this is what science is doing, and it's helpful, right? It allows us to build tech. And the fact that tech works is very interesting. Um, But the model of the thing is not actually the thing, right? This is the map is not the territory thing. And so if if I have a thing, I make a model of it. Now, the, the map of the thing is the thing for tech, for physical tech that we made, right? And that's the difference between complicated systems that we build that don't self-organize and don't evolve and don't replicate versus complex systems that do self-organize, self-correct. There's a fundamental difference in the nature of those systems. But when we're trying to understand complex systems, which is psychology, biology, sociology, ecology, the foundational things, the model of it isn't the thing. So when I then optimize for the model, wherever the model's wrong, wherever it's missing something is where that thing that I'm optimizing can externalize harm. So I find a specific way that a disease is acting. I find a specific molecular target. I create a drug for that molecular target, that model, and it works and it stops that symptomology or that aspect of pathogenesis. It causes side effects somewhere else that I didn't know and couldn't have really predicted ahead of time and maybe doesn't address some things that are upstream from that molecular target that were why that thing was happening in the first place. And so is that useless? No. Is it anything close to knowledge with a capital N or capital K? No, of course not. Right. Um, So the, the, I might be reading into this. I have no idea if this is how it was originally intended, or it's just a nice way to interpret it, but the whole idea of, Um, no graven images, no false idols. The way I think of that is that the model of reality is an idol. If I take it to be reality, if I, if I, and that's the too much certainty in the believable thing, the Tao that is knowable is the model, right? That I can fully explicate that has no more mystery in it of the unknowable set of possibilities. So the model's useful. We're not saying we shouldn't be doing science. Of course we should. The model's useful. And Newtonian gravity, as useful as it was, got massively updated with Einsteinian gravity and quantum gravity, and then that will get updated. And so we want to hold it as useful and not capital T true, which means what we we stay actually our reverence is about reality, which is beyond knowable. I can keep knowing parts, but I can keep doing that indefinitely. And so there's a reverence for reality that means none of my models or beliefs should ever be sacred to me. The sacred is fundamentally unknowable, unexplainable. I can kind of point to it through poetry, which is what Lao Tzu is doing. And so then I'm like, it's beautiful that we were able to come up with a model that's as predictive as it is. And let's use this. And 
let's not get certain about it. Let's not even seek certainty around that. Let's have mathematical certainty that we can actually make a plane that will work or whatever, but let's keep seeking to understand reality in deeper ways and have a certain epistemic humility bound to that. That's, that's critical. And that's where something, and this is why the very best scientists had this. This is why Einstein said the things about, I want to know God's thoughts. The rest is trivia and the value of intuition and imagination and, why I think it was uh, Sillard who was saying of all the founders of modern physics, Johnny von Neumann was the smartest in terms of clock speed, but Einstein had the deepest insights. And what was Einstein doing that wasn't clock speed that had the deepest insights? It was something connected to when he would puff his pipe and look at the clouds and go blank and then come back to the whiteboard or play his violin and be raptured that had to do with not just a processing of parts, but a sensing of wholeness. And there's a way that most people do one of the, or the other of those things, right? They orient either to say in on this side, something like a monastic process or art, or on this side, something like science, technology, engineering. I would say the full human experience is the way those relate to each other. Um, the way we can seek better formal understanding, because let's say we're going to make a decision about the electrical grid. I want to actually use science to understand very formally what the risks are and how to build the thing and the materials and all like that. I also want to understand that there might be risks that are not being factored in our current risk assessment. So I want an elastic possibility to update this with the input of new information. So how do I say this is the best of what we know and let's move forward with it? And how do we keep not just, we don't want to resist new information. We want to be actively seeking how we're wrong. It seems to me that, you know, what's emerging and let's, so let's talk about, you know, briefly here before we talk about where this is kind of leading, but you discuss hyper objects and hyper objects are these constructs, which are so complicated that they're actually truly unknowable because there's too many factors for us to actually sort out. And the ultimate of the hyper objects is a human being because particularly we're part material and reductionist and we can talk about our different cells, but even though cells are made of atoms, which we can't fully even grasp with our own quantum mechanics. And so we're also this other thing, this felt sense of this other thing, the capital M mystery thing. And so we end up with the hyper object of a human being as a very fundamentally challenging, you know, challenging thing to grapple with at, at the very base level. So it seems that we have to, as you were somewhat suggesting, bring in this healthy respect for awe, for rapture, for the mystery, for a lot of what Jamie Wheel has been talking about, like finding that the divine within the entheogen, you know, the etymology of that awakening, that sense, that knowing of what we have, and then combining that with science to figure out what we're doing our best. But it seems like the thing that's the check and balance, the, the, the bounds, the checks on whatever we're doing, it has to reduce to something else like Eisenstein's sense of inner being, this feeling that we are all interconnected or the highest ideal of truth and love right? Like these things that perhaps have to be the ultimate or maybe are the only checks and balances. So when somebody is doing something that is out of accord with the fundamental principle of inner being, which is the belief that everybody is you living a different life, the earth is actually not separate from you, but a part of you. And we can actually look at that by everything that we consume from the earth becomes us. We can look at it atomically. We can look at it in a variety of different ways. We have to bring that understanding and blend it in a very kind of 
sensible way with what we can know from science. But that's not, as you said, it's not happening. It's being siloed. There's people who are exploring these other kind of spiritual aspects of things. And then there's the scientists that are sorting these things out and, and asserting that they have you know, full knowledge of, of everything in there. And then there's the middle actors, the politicians who are, you know, claiming that they know everything about COVID, for example, and maybe they even feel justified about claiming the, the dangers of these certain things because they don't really know. And if they say they don't know, they're worried about what people do. So they have this kind of Thanos justification of, well, we better say it's as bad as we can possibly say, because we need people to act in this certain way, because that will actually save lives rather than being bound by truth by love by this sense of mystery of the unknowing and really trusting that those principles will actually somehow some miraculous way those principles will hold but without those checks and balances it seems like there are no checks and balances so uh, I'll, I'll translate what you're saying to um, another way of speaking about it is asking are there different methods of knowing that are relevant uh, for different types of contexts? Science is a method of knowing things, right? Uh, it's a methodology. It's a, so epistemology means how do we know what we know? What is our process of coming to um, understanding or belief or knowing? And so science is really an epistemic process of how do we do observation, do measurements, do uh, testing and prediction, and et cetera? Science per se pertains to the domain of things that we can measure first, which means third person objective things and where we can repeat the measurements. Are there some things that are real where I might get a measure, but I can't repeat it? Sure. Are there some things that are real that I can't even measure? either because they're outside of the scope of current measurability or because they're not measurable in kind, like a first-person experience. Oh, well, I can measure a first-person experience by measuring brain states. No, measuring a brain state as a neural correlate of a first-person experience is not the nature of the first-person experience. This is the, no matter how much I know about the genetics and evolutionary history and chemistry of a strawberry, if I've never tasted, I still don't know what a fucking strawberry tastes like. The taste sure, of a strawberry. Yeah, a five, five MEO can create a one hertz, you know, delta, delta, you know, brainwave state, but it doesn't mean that you have any idea what it's like to be in the experience of, of a five MEO journey, right? Like you, you can you have can't reduce it. neuroscientists studying the brainwaves of people on five MEO or 40 years and meditators and saying, okay, I know more about their brain states than they do. It's true. Do you know how to navigate into those experiences or even have a sense of what they're like? Not at all. So what that means is, but are they real? Yes, they're real, but they're not objective. So subjective is not fake and objective is real. Objective is a subset of the real. Subjective is a subset of the real. Now we get in trouble when we take a subjective experience and try to make an objective proposition about it, right? So I have an experience, whatever it is, the experience is an angel spoke to me or something about. Now, if I make an objective proposition, angels are definitely ontologically real. They live in this thing called the astral plane. They, whatever it is. I'm making a jump from a domain of experience to a domain of statement about objective reality without doing the appropriate check to see, does that hold? If that was true, what beyond my experience would also be true that can be appropriate validation. 
So what I can say is it is real that I had an experience of this type and that it was, uh, that it was meaningful for me in these ways. Right. And so this is where it's like, there are different domains. Mathematics doesn't involve measurement. It involves just pure principles of order. So math isn't science. That's a whole other domain of epistemology of just pure principles of order and relationality. Right. So there's a reason I'm bringing this up. Everyone does rationality, but they don't all do it well. You have to train it, right? The early Greek thing of saying, well, if I at arm's length close one eye and hold my thumb up like this uh, to the moon, my thumb obscures the moon. Therefore, the moon is smaller than my thumb. That's a rational argument that's wrong because it's not factoring the change in visual perception of size based on depth, depth perception, right? Um, Farness away. And so we can do rational constructions that are wrong. So basically critical thinking in science is the study of how to do rationality well. And we have whole university programs on how to do rationality well, because almost everyone is rational wrongly most of the time, right? And there's a similar thing for intuition. Most people do intuition wrongly, and there is a process to refine it, but we don't actually have good school processes for how to do that as much. So most people will say they'll have an experience, and then they'll make a claim about objective reality. Eh, that's a problem, right? Like, uh, And their desire for certainty is still getting booted. In that moment, they might have been in a trans-egoic state. But then their ego tries to capture it and say, no, I can say this for sure about the nature of God or what happens after we die or whatever. Probably not. Like you don't actually have the base for that. You're, you're moving from something that was an experience beyond belief to trying to make a belief about it. Don't do that. Yeah. That's not the thing to do. The, that's what the knowledge that is knowable is not the eternal knowledge is referencing that there is a, that there is a domain that isn't about believing, right? It's about a nature of an experience that creates a sense of devotion that will affect the nature of how I act, including the nature of how much I want to pay attention and study so that I can act better. But when I convert it into belief, I have to be careful. Did I do that properly or did I go sloppy? I can give an example of how this happens. And this is where you have this kind of spiritual epistemic hubris, right? And I've seen it in ayahuasca ceremonies. Somebody has, and ayahuasca gives you unbelievable access to what feels like gnosis with the GS, the felt sense of things, but it will also give you images. And then these images will then play out a story. And, and I've had, you know, you always have a sharing circle and you'll have people who will share something and they'll share something. And often this happened recently, sharing something about me. Oh, I, I appeared to them as this bunny and this bunny said this thing. And they were certain that I was actually the bunny actually saying this thing. Whereas with the humility, it would have been like, there was this thing, like a dream, for example, you know, like not, it's not imagining that this dream was a real dream, but what does this say about potentially about something that is actually real, but potentially about me? Maybe this was about me needing to see you as a bunny. So I felt more comfortable with my own relational nature to you. And so there's so much that you have to look at that you have to approach these things as the mystery. And I think this is the problem when anybody gets into uh, you know, channeled text or this kind of idea of reading someone psychically, or you can even on the spiritual side, let alone on the materialistic scientific side, you can arrive at certainty from your own subjective experience, which is also, you know, challenging. And I, and I talked about that with Eric Davis as well. Like you also have to just have great respect for 
even the most transcendent truth that you arrive at, just this kind of humility of like, maybe, maybe, and this was interesting. And, uh, you know, let's, let's sit with this. Let's feel it until it feels, you know, until it feel and see how it feels and see what it reveals over time. Yeah. If like this actually interesting that the essence of the scientific impulse, the highest essence of the scientific impulse is a reverence for reality. There's actually a kind of felt reverence where it's like, I, I want to come to study and know what is, including if it's different than what I think. I, I'm totally happy to have the experiment prove me wrong because mm-hmm. I respect what is more than I re- respect my own wrong ideas about it. And there's a depth of curiosity and desire to know an epistemic drive that arises out of a certain like respect and reverence for reality. It's fucking beautiful. Is that held all the time? Because I can also have an unhealthy spirit of science, which is I want to be maximally certain of all the things I possibly can so that my emotionally negative relationship with uncertainty can be crowded out. So I want to just have all the facts that I can and feel like I have good answers for everything so that I feel secure. Those are very different spirits, very different like come froms of the thing. Um, And So if I have a respect and a reverence for reality and I study history a little bit and I look at how many things the best thinkers in the world historically got wrong, got right, but then also wrong or partial and then couldn't have possibly figured how it was going to be advanced beyond them. There's a, there's a humility I'm bound to, to not just be ridiculous, right? Like I would be ridiculous otherwise. And then I also get, that everyone else that is perceiving reality, there is some signal in what they're perceiving. There's some reality. So my respect for reality also means my my interest in the way other people see it. Now, this becomes the basis of politics. When you were talking about politics earlier, polis of the people, right? Do we have to do politics? Yes, we have to say, how do, how do these homo sapiens with, that don't have stone tools that have the ability to split atoms and create nuclear weapons that have the ability to create artificial intelligence, have the ability to go into space. How do these ape creatures with the power of gods coordinate with each other in a way that doesn't just do the ape creature thing with that much power? Because if I have the power of gods and I don't have some kind of commensurate wisdom and virtue guiding it, then we Mm self-destruct. And so what is the wisdom and virtue that is adequate to guide the amount of power that our tech has given us is like a defining question. And so one of the key insights is that in all the wars, let's say that it's a a physical war. If I don't kill the other side completely, right? We just, we, we win a battle. They they're still in the world. They don't, they don't go away they learn whatever weapon that we used or whatever military strategy, they make their own innovations and then they come back. And that's the escalation of war, right? That's an an arms race of some kind. But the same is true in a political war. We work real hard to beat them. So for four years, our guy gets in and we made an innovation of how to get more people out to vote or how to do a more compelling piece of media that scared people and shamed them into voting, whatever the fuck it was. We figured out how to use 
uh, a better AI system to make customized versions of our message for demographics that aren't voting. Well, the other side that loses don't stop existing as people and they don't agree with you. They actually feel more disenfranchised, more upset against you. They reverse engineer that innovation, add innovations and come back and the whole field of warfare just escalates. Same in culture wars or any view of left, right, whatever kind of thing. So, and with the industrial revolution, this very long exponential curve of us developing the power of gods through tech, right? Through abstraction, tech and coordination that other animals didn't have. It makes us not an apex predator because apex predators are fit to a single environment and in uh, kind of built in harmony, they eat a little bit too many of the prey and then the prey are fast enough and their population goes down. We were able to become the apex predator in every environment and over hunt every single environment, right? And then continue to do that thing. Well, I mean, I think ultimately, ultimately what we're leading back to is the necessity for the you know, the necessity for this, this other, this other way of this other way of knowing this other way of, of a, a check and balance that, that we have to, we have to have in place. That seems to be something beyond something beyond the, technology, the love and wisdom or the virtue and wisdom of God's right. commensurate power. Okay. So, so basically the moment we started getting the abstraction capacities that gave us tools, language, et cetera, we were differentiated from the rest of animals in a fundamental way. And there was an exponential curve of our differentiation that started, but it was long and slow for a long time, like exponential curves are. And it started to uptick kind of with the industrial revolution. And then it started to verticalize with the digital revolution and the exponential tech that digital makes possible. So what that means is the speed and the consequentiality of the types of issues we've had for forever, the problems of both warfare, meaning caused direct harm with our power and externality, indirect harm caused by our capabilities is now on the verticalizing part of the exponential curve. And so can we run exponential externalities in a finite biosphere? No. Can you do exponential warfare? Can you do exponential control of the what different populations think, meaning exponential disinformation and still have enough coherence or consistency for anything like a viable civilization? No. So we are at this unique point where the total magnitude of power makes the way that we've been behaving that's been problematic for a long time inexorably catastrophically problematic. But those same types of capacities, that same abstraction and technology makes possible if we repurpose how we're using it, something like a new type of viable global civilization that has never been possible before. Mm -hmm. um, the ability to process, I mean, obviously we're having a conversation mediated by computers and satellites and the internet that then lots of other people are watching that allows for something that couldn't have happened previously, right? If we want to make decisions regarding the biosphere and the technosphere and very complex things, you have to be able to coordinate the sense-making intelligence of lots of people. That same tech that being used for narrow rivalrous purposes, driving externalities, destroys stuff. If we took those externalities and kept internalizing them and saying, let's take all the things that matter and apply the tech towards that progressively better, make a very different set of possibilities. Yeah. One thing that you you bring up, which is, I think, really important is in in the world where we cannot escape the mystery and that we must adopt this felt sense of humility oppression of contrary opinions is absolutely a problem because you cannot be certain that you're right about anything so when you start to censor or oppress through any 
different type of cancel culture, force, um, removal, deplatforming, et cetera, even though your justification might be, well, you know, from a utilitarian standpoint, this might be causing harm. The fact that you can't be certain about whether you're right, especially when you're dealing with a hyper object, like the interaction of a virus, which we know very little about with the most complex organism, you could argue on the entire planet, which is a human being, which is in itself a hyper object, the unknowable, you know, you can't start censoring people, deplatforming them because you think you're doing the right thing. It, it fundamentally degrades the whole degrades the whole thing. And this is one of the deep challenges of this kind of hubris, this certainty that you're right. Like we need this chorus of voice of voices in discourse to try and outsource this problem to as many different perspectives as possible and then start to wade through it, get them in healthy discussions. You know, and as I was leading up to this, I was thinking like, fuck, man, like the art of debate, you know, like really like honest debate where it's like where you where you give each other a hug at the end and thank them for bringing the ideas like that idea between these different, you know, polemic sides. This is something that needs to come back and it needs to come back in the public forum and be encouraged, you know, like, great. Wow. This is an interesting contrary opinion that you have, Dr. Thomas Cowan, you know, like let's let's have you talk to someone who's you know the the leading expert in germ theory and let's talk about your terrain theory and let's let's just discuss this let's encourage this type of thing it seems like that's what's necessary you know to move forward and start to sort out all of these immense problems unfortunately it's not what's happening it's it's opposite of what's happening right now in many ways and you know what we're seeing is just the use of force we're seeing power games being played out which I think the they're grounded in this hubris, but ultimately this is, and I think it's a big part of what your consilience project is, is to make transparent these things that are happening so that we can get to the point where everybody's just starting to talk to each other and collectively we're starting to figure shit out together. This is actually really tricky and nuanced. Um, most people really don't like the idea of censorship of speech and deplatforming when it comes to ideas that they resonate with. But, but most of the people, let's say we take someone who has a politically right perspective that doesn't like the deplatforming impulse of cancel culture, they might still feel really happy to censor Chinese sock puppets that are sowing propaganda in the US. And they're like, we have to fucking stop that because people don't have the epistemic training to be able to know what is a sock puppet and what isn't. And they're influencing teenagers who are on here who are already upset and suicidal or whatever the fuck it is, right? And they're using AI tools to be able to do it. They're using amplification in a way when, when we talk about freedom of speech, the most people that you could talk to was like the people that could hear you speak when you were standing yeah. somewhere. And so, so do we want to censor Russian propaganda in our media space? Do we want to... so? Most people think that there are certain actors that don't have the interest of whatever the in-group we're paying attention to is that could share information that is false, but with a higher degree of game theoretic capacity than the general public has that could beat them. And they're like, no, we actually have to deal with that. So it's tricky, right? It's, yep. it's, uh, there's, a, there's a nuanced argument here. And because there's a nuanced argument, it's the kind of thing that you need the right kind of conversation around. Um, what does... When we talk about free speech, a right, what is the responsibility that's associated with a right? And what does that look like in the digital amplification age? And then when the 
AI optimization algorithms take whatever the stickiest shit is and optimize it for people who've already been trained for a whole life of addictive susceptibility who will then go act on that consequentially. I can put out something that is almost tailor engineered to fuck people up psychologically and it will work across the say, I kind of think, is that a good thing? Should we just allow all of that? Well then no, we'll stop that. Well, who is the we <laughs> that we trust to adjudicate yeah. what is true? Because any power that can adjudicate what is true, if captured, would be the most powerfully bad force. This is so this is why this is tricky, right? And this is why we have to rethink, okay, in the digital AI empowered, et cetera, world, we have to rethink some of these things. So what are fundamentals? Rights and responsibilities being paired is an important concept. If I have a right and no responsibility that's associated, you get certain kinds of entitlement and tragedy of the commons issues. No one is responsible to mediate that, which is, well, who gives you the right? Who the, where the fuck does the right come from? Who's, who's tending to and moderating that if I'm not willing to take any responsibility for it? In democracies, we can vote ourselves rights that we're not willing to take responsibility for and the thing starts to decay. So, okay, if I have responsibilities and I don't have rights that are attached, that's some kind of servitude. So there's a way that those have to be held together, right? For And different cultures could do it differently, but just like there's a dialectic between traditionalism and progressivism, a dialectic between individualism and collectivism, there's a dialectic between rights and responsibilities that has to be thought about well. Yeah. And you can fall off on either side of that thing real easy. Now, just like there's epistemic hubris, there's moral hubris, right? I'm so certain that my moral position is right that I'll fight a holy war over it. And there are modern online versions of holy wars um, associated with new ideologies that are kind of like, that have religious-like elements, belief, in-group, etc., cetera, uh, proselytizing. So there is a need for both. And this is so interesting. You were mentioning earlier epistemic hubris and epistemic nihilism. There's this very sad phenomenon where a lot of people go from epistemic hubris, where like they have a not well-considered position on something. They think it's well-considered because they watch 10 YouTube videos um, and they have no idea how much that they don't actually know about it. So there's a Dunning-Kruger and, and this person, to happen. This, this person is actually literally wearing a shirt right now that says, because science, period. Like I've actually seen that, seen that shirt, you know, because science, period, where they're so certain that, you know, the science that whatever they're talking about is so right that they, they, they're just proclaiming it, you know, in this. In well, this I mean, it can go both sides, right? There's a because science, and then there's also a because religion and because Q said so. Of course. Um, of course. So it's, of course. What is the thing that I think gives me the certainty and authority that I can um, defer to in this way? And things are complex. I want certainty. I don't want to do the hard work. So I want to cognitively offload somewhere. Well, that's then very useful for anyone who wants power because they're like, oh, these people want to cognitively offload. I'll tell them what's true. And now you have a power game for being able to share versions of truth that have economic and political advantage to somebody. Um, so this question of a trusted institution, well, what would be the basis of warranted trust? How do I know if I can trust this fucking thing? What, so what is the oversight process and what are the capacities that people have to have to oversight it properly? Can I oversight something where I don't understand the technical details of it? Um, these are good and important questions and things that we have to develop because we do need to develop a certain capacity for shared sense-making if we're going to do shared choice-making. And if we don't do shared choice making, then we're fucked. Then we won't. Then China will do shared choice making because it just says everyone will sense make the same way because of dictate. Mm. And 
Sesame Credit will ensure they don't do anything else. And a IoT surveillance system will make sure they don't, because if anyone else, they don't think anything else or act on it. And, and we don't have term limits, so we don't have to worry about four years doing one thing and then the other four years undoing whatever was done in those years, most of the energy just going into campaigning. We don't have internal parties just using up most of the energy of the country wasted as heat, right? So, so they can actually build high-speed trains all around the world. And we, the U.S. hasn't built one in, in our own country. You're like, that's not a good sign. That's not a good, like, it's a good sign for them, a better capacity to actually do real shit. Right, to coordinate towards some real important things. They lifted 300 million people out of poverty in a fairly short period of time. Like nobody else done that kind of thing. So you're like, oh, autocracy is actually quite effective. Um, and high tech empowered autocracy is something the world has never seen. The world has never seen a Sesame Credit, IoT, AI empowered autocracy. That's an interesting proposition of what that thing could be. Well, that's going to beat an open society if the open society is spending all its energy fighting with itself. Yeah. And the left and the right spend most of their energy fighting each other. You spend four years doing something, four years undoing it because the term limit, no one even thinks about a 30 year plan for anything because you, I'm not going to get reelected if the shit that I do doesn't show up in the four years of that time. So the short term orientation and the internal infighting, I mean, we just lose, right? So technologically empowered autocracy runs the 21st century, unless. You can get an open society to coordinate more effectively than an autocracy can. How the fuck do you get an open society with lots of people to coordinate more effectively? This is the societies are societies end up failing on either the direction of chaos or oppression, right? I can say, well, the people think different stuff. They have different life experiences. They have different beliefs. They want different stuff. They aren't that connected to wanting to make sacrifices for people they don't know. The tribal thing worked because you knew everybody in that tribe. Your life depended on them. There were only 150 people, but this is huge numbers of anonymous people. And fuck those people in that state I've never been to or whatever it is, <laughs> right? So how do, I, how do I bind those people together when there's so little basis for binding and so much energy for cleaving? And so... Um, so the, the, if I don't, it's very easy to have chaos emerge pretty naturally. I want this thing. I want this thing. We're, and we're just going to fight over it. And you get increasing kind of all against all wars, right? And then the thing fails. Well, you say, no, we need order. We actually need some order to be able to coordinate. Otherwise, we get beat by some external force that has order. So we're going to get the order through imposing it. We're going to do stronger top-down, everybody thinks this thing, better versions of government cohesion of belief, we call that government propaganda, um, control of the population, we call that authoritarian state, whatever it is. I mean, control of the behavior. But then that's a failed state in its own purpose, because it's not actually serving and liberating the people. And as a result, it ends up getting a homogeny of thinking, which doesn't have the creativity to actually innovate for new problems in the world and usually fails for those reasons and doesn't, doesn't have a high enough collective intelligence because of it doing that homogenizing thing. So what we need is order that is not imposed. So we don't fail on the chaos side or the oppression side. How do we get emergent order? Well, if the order is to be emergent rather than imposed, it means everybody has to be able to make sense of the world similarly and has to be able to reason about not just what is, but what ought. So ethics and morals similarly, and have enough respect for each other that you have a conversation where you want to hear what other people think. And you don't want to just beat them and then think that they don't exist and they're not going to come back 
there's a short-sightedness of these cultural arms races and political arms races. We beat them and now we won for a minute, right? Yeah. And then they up the ante and come back. If they don't go away, if you don't get the, pe- the other people off the planet, then it's von Clausewitz said war is politics by other means, but politics is the way that we get to actually avoid war, right? So if I want to avoid war of some kind, how do we coordinate, especially when when there's forced coordination occurring through technologically empowered autocracy. So now this comes back to your point about dissenting views. A civically minded person, as well as even a a well-informed epistemically minded person knows that they're probably wrong about most things, right? Knows that there's probably a lot of stuff that they don't know that they don't know. They want to know it. They don't want to hold on to being wrong about something or partial or whatever. They also don't want to hold a view that is going to polarize a lot of the population against them because that they should cooperate with, where it would be better to cooperate with them if you really do long-term thinking on what not cooperating looks like. So I want to seek to understand what other people are thinking, both what they value and their understanding of the world. And we, we want to try to create a situation in which we can synthesize our sense-making of what is, and we can identify, okay, so in this particular situation, you're saying no to this climate change policy or whatever, and it's not because you hate the environment and want to fuck the environment. It's because you think that this particular policy is going to damage GDP for the US, China's not going to agree to it, and it's going to cede the 21st century to technologically empowered autocracy. What you really want is the protection of open society. So you're looking at climate change through the lens of liberty. Liberty. Liberty is a valuable thing. I'm actually down with that. I'm looking at environment. You do, you can't care about the environment in this way. You can't even believe the science or look at it. And your, your lack of belief doesn't have to do with looking at it because you think my solution equals something that will destroy liberty. But otherwise, you actually also would care about the environment. You prefer clean air and a world that isn't destroyed through excessive natural disasters. So if we can separate the strategies that are shitty strategies from the values they're seeking to serve and recognize that the values on the other side are also real and say, how do we hold these together and then try to come up with solutions that meet all of them better, that have less unnecessary trade-offs, that balance the trade-offs better. Then we stop driving unnecessary polarization and you can start to have an, the fact that in an open society, those diverse viewpoints mean more collective intelligence than the homogeny thing has. And as a result, it, it can actually coordinate across a larger body of collective intelligence. That's the only thing I actually feel much hope about in terms of how we move through this next phase. For me, what I think is actually gives me hope that we might do it is I think we all have to get back to you know, the deepest fundamental truths, which are that we are, we are all connected. We are all in this state of interbeing. And this, this is, this is a, I truly believe that I know with the G that this is, this is reality. And you can look at it. And again, I've, you know, you can justify this in a lot of ways. We're all connected to the earth. We're all connected to each other. We're all more similar than we're not. We're all in this together. This is a, a global existential crisis that we're facing. So either we push against the bounds so much that eventually our tribalism collapses and all of the petty needs of one versus the other fall apart because we're really up against the brink of something that is no longer tenable if we continue. And it's so prescient that we will die. We will all die. 
It's mutually assured destruction if we continue the path, and that will bring us together in some form of humanism. You could imagine that there's some Independence Day situation where we're attacked by another species and all humans rally together. You can suppose all of these different things, but the thing, all of those are horrible situations, ultimately, you know, that may, may be necessary. And for me, what actually drives my faith and my belief that we can all do this in the way that you're proposing, where we all start to sense make together is there is a trend in mental health where mental health is declining severely. The more that we do this, the more isolated we become, the more that we're unhappy. And you can see this in all of the different trends of depression, suicidality, anxiety, all of these things, how many people are are moving to pharmaceutical solutions, which are not particularly working that well. And being that the rates of all of these different mental conditions are rising at the same time, we have a new paradigm, which is the legalization of psychedelic medicine for treatment of some of these specific conditions, post-traumatic stress disorder, end-of-life anxiety, depression. There's going to be myriad different things that psilocybin, MDMA are legalized for and perhaps other things. So what we're facing is we're facing a situation where the mental health crisis is going to drive people to these psychedelic medicines. And as someone with 22 years of experience in these what they're actually treating is a side effect of the experience itself. The effects that it has on depression, this is my belief, that the effects it has on depression, the effects that it has on trauma, the effects it has on anxiety, the effects it has on any one of these different things that it's going to be legalized for, it's actually treating that as a side effect of the fundamental experience, which is an experience that is ineffable and indescribable in its fundamental state. And you can look at the Johns Hopkins study, you know, top life experiences for people who are experiencing psilocybin for the first time, all of these different things, we're driving ourselves to a situation where we finally have what we're reaching for is going to be an alternative to pharmaceuticals. And I think that's what most people are going to reach towards. But what they're accidentally going to get is a dose of the fundamental, inexorable truth of reality, which is that we're all bound by love and commonality. And I think as this moves, this is the thing actually for me personally, and I think maybe You can also say that we all need hope for some reason, and this is the way that I'm hanging my hope just so I can have sanity in my life. But I believe that we're all going to be driven to this. Some people will reach for it who are ready. Some people will be driven to it because the mental conditions will continue at such a pace that they'll just have to go to treat their depression or they'll have to go to treat some condition. But more and more people are going to get to that state, which is going to reach a critical mass. And then that is going to create the commonality and openness where all of this work that you're doing is going to proliferate and proliferate at such a way. And it's not just you, I'm saying you and the participatory and the collective you of the people and the ideas and the zeitgeist that's emerging from these things that you're talking about of of the meta discussions, but it's going to drive this in a way that has far more momentum than we realize. And it's going to continue to build. And to me, that is the way that I make sense of the greatest hope for, for what we have. That's my, you know, that's my Gandalf on the hill with the shining staff and the, and the white robes, you know, I mean, that's, that's the thing that I believe has a very good chance of, uh, of saving the day. So here's the thought that comes up for me uh, about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to start with a tangent and come back in. If I think about physical tools, some tools are intentionally made at uh, called weapons. It's a tool for a rivalrous purpose explicitly. But pretty much any tool that is intended for another purpose could be weaponized if I had to. 
right? A, a hammer is not made for that purpose. Screwdriver is not made for that purpose. A, a laptop isn't, but I could hit somebody with a laptop if I, if I needed to and be more sure. effective than maybe my fist. So every tool can be weaponized. And of course, the laptop can be one of the most powerful weapons if I'm talking about cyber attacks or narrative attacks because the tool is just extending our power. And then the question is, what is our power in service to, both knowingly and unknowingly? It's also true that psychological tools and epistemic tools and even spiritual capacities can be weaponized. And this is why we have a history of holy wars. Like, that's a weird thing. How is it that if ultimately the basis of what's being served is some sense of the true, the good, and the beautiful, and something transcendent, that it creates a basis of war so effectively? Um, All virtues exist in dialectic with a virtue that seems like the opposite, and you can fail on either side, right? This is the Ecclesiastes. There's a time for to sow and to reap and for peace and for war. So, so what is it that knows which one? Well, there's some discernment, some presence and discernment that is able to do that. So we can weaponize certainty, make people falsely certain about something so they move forward with the holy war, but we can also weaponize uncertainty. So it's not like certainty bad, uncertainty good. Um, Weaponized uncertainty is actually one of the most common political narrative warfare things that happens. The term FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. When people feel more fear, uncertainty, and doubt, so not uncertainty with the awe and beauty, but uncertainty like, fuck, what's going on? I feel scared. They defer Mm. to strongmen more, strongmen leaders. So anyone who has a strongman leader orientation actually likes to drive fear, uncertainty, and doubt as a narrative weapon for power consolidation. Because then, look, you feel highly uncertain, I'll give you some certainty now. Um, Or you at least go nihilistic and don't get in the way. And similarly, people can weaponize uncertainty like, okay, it's the beginning of Facebook. Just starting, it's a dating app, right? And then it's like a social app. Nobody's thinking it's going to destroy democracy by ruining the epistemic commons because of its ad model empowered by AI and um, and the monopoly of network adoption. But some people actually were talking about that, right? There were some people early on, the Jaron Laniers and folks like that, who were saying, actually, this thing shouldn't have an ad model. There are reasons why that's a really bad thing. And it was like, dude, you can't be certain of that. Like, let's just, we don't know what's going to happen. We're doing a good thing. You got to have faith. You got to just like build the positive thing. We'll move fast and break things. That's what drives innovation, right? Is that we have new problems and humanity is rising to the occasion to innovate low. So it's weaponized weaponized uncertainty. You can't know, therefore, do the thing that I have an incentive to do. As opposed to really try to do deep risk analysis and say, what would... What are the possibilities of what could happen? What is the best risk analysis we could do? What's the best design we can do? And then what's the best iterative design process that when we realize things we didn't realize, we can change the design and not be bound to shareholder fiduciary responsibility or things that make an autopoetic machine that nobody can control. Um, So now in terms of psychedelics, I would say the thing that you're saying that I totally agree with and find is true is that People's ability to increase their sense-making adequately, the open societies can coordinate to solve the problems of the world, doesn't start with sense-making. It actually starts with something like virtue, right? It starts with, because 
it's so common that I, I was, I forgot this train earlier. People have epistemic certainty and then they realize that there's other stuff and they're wrong and they flip in one step to nihilism. It's too much. I can't make sense of anything. And there's almost no fortitude to be like, I'm going to try to understand progressively better while acknowledging that I don't and do hard work and not just cognitively offload. Um, so there's something like epistemic humility and commitment at the same time mm-hmm. that is, but there's a virtue that is required to invest in that. There's a virtue that's required to want to hear what you have to say and not just feel some fake connectivity with someone else by outgrouping the same person. So we're on the in group together, which is a, it's a bullshit connectivity, right. Or a bullshit hit or whatever it is. So the work that it takes to sense make reality well and to coordinate with each other. Well, why would people invest in it? There is something that they have to actually value. There's a number of things they have to value deep enough to summon that investment. So do I think that the health of our systems and our global society is connected to the health of individual psychologies and relational health? Absolutely. So the idea, are there emerging technologies and possibilities and awareness about mental health that could be part of the breakthrough where we actually, in the same way we will say better living through chemistry, DDT, whatever, uh, super helpful for agriculture, and then realize all the harm that it externalized and there's no pollinators left, whatever, we externalize harm to people's mental health, right? So um, radically increased addiction, depression, complex PTSD for almost everybody, low-grade existential angst for almost everybody, that is not actually the native human condition. That is the result of a society that is optimized for GDP and GDP per capita through optimizing addiction and distraction and competition and shit like that, right? And broken tribe, the healthy kind of tribal relationships where there is a basis of real trust with people. And so we need to recognize that externality and say, no, no, fuck, we actually, the the civilization shouldn't be optimizing for GDP. The civilization should be optimizing for the psychological health of the people and their ability and the social health of the people, their ability to coordinate together, because that's what's going to determine the health of the commons, national security, and everything else, because all the things are fucking done by people. So what is the basis by which humans are making choices and then making choices with each other? What is their own sense-making and meaning-making informing their choice-making? And what is their ability to coordinate with the sense-making and meaning-making of other people towards coordinated choice-making? That has to become the basis of what civilization is trying to help, right? Trying to serve. Now, I do think that awareness of this and not just psychedelics, but you know, there's been a huge proliferation in mindfulness and CBT and various different methods. I think psychedelics have the ability to do state induction easier than lots of other processes because a Sundance is hard. Not that many people are going to do a Sundance and even a vision quest and, you know, four days of water fasting is hard. And, and the amount of meditation it takes to start to have an experience of the numinous is hard. So in a culture where people don't mostly do hard stuff yet, um, can we uh, can we help them have a numinous experience that puts them in the right direction? You and I have both seen a lot of people be helped by this. Sure. But there's a lot of the best people that have ever lived have never done psychedelics. And there's a lot of people who do lots of psychedelics that are just shits. And... <laughs> That's um, true. 
you know, if I look at a Jimmy Carter type person who post cancer, after all the service he did for the world is something like 98 and he's still swinging hammers, literally building homes for poor people around the world. I'm like, I will take more people like that, even if he's never had a numinous experience, like whatever condition, that kind of um, ethical commitment, like I'll, I'll take that over people who, because they have a transcendent experience, will do that Facebook kind of weaponized uncertainty and be very good entrepreneurs who are moving forward something that is a very partial vision that's externalizing harm other places, not paying attention to it. I've seen people do psychedelics and actually say, now I know for real, this is a simulation because I could see into the code of the matrix on an NDMT or whatever. And so, and I know that it's really just a game. And I actually know that my consciousness is the only thing there is. And so I'm just going to fucking win the game. Yeah, no, it can lead to mania. It can lead to all, it's not a, it's not a panacea by any means, you know? And I, and I think that's a very, it's a very important point that, uh, that this is not there. However, I would, I would dare say, let's, let's talk about one of these, you know, cheap manipulative tools that we talked about, like where people are arguing about gay marriage, right? Which is patently obvious that of course a human being if you want to get married it doesn't matter your sexual orientation i would dare say that someone who is against that in the peak of a guided mdma assisted journey as they were completely open their serotonin system was flooded and they had that sense of deep belonging and security and connection that the that the, the facilitator could ask them what do you think about people with a homosexual orientation getting married i would venture to say that at that point they'd be like yeah, for sure. Like if they love, like let them love and like, let them be. I do have a fundamental belief that in the right context to course correct from kind of stubborn stuck patterns of thinking these, the kind of, uh, brittle and unplastic, unmalleable belief systems. It has a way of potentially melting those enough and getting to a point where it's like, yeah, yeah, we can't do that. Yeah, we can't fuck the oceans. Yeah, we can't fuck over each other. Yeah. Like, I just feel like from my own experience and watching people go through it, there's there's hope there. There's hope there that it will, you know, even though it's going to create some outliers and even though, you know, as Moctezuma had his priests all taking, you know, Teotonacto, which is psilocybin and cutting the hearts out of people and shoving those hearts in the mouth of you know, Huitzilopochtli, the hummingbird god. And while, you know, certain gang members will take MDMA when they go on a shooting because it'll prevent them from feeling the kind of the impact that they're doing. And certainly it can be used in bad ways. Certainly I've seen people go, you know, completely manic and think that they are the actual linchpin for the world and, and all of these other things. We're looking at situations that need to make a gross positive impact. And I think the net gross positive impact is going to be overwhelmingly positive, but there will be, you know, certainly casualties to this and also opportunities for this to be misused different cult leaders that could rise using entheogens and different things that are driving people into weird psychologically manipulative states. There's risks, you know, there's no, there's no panacea and there's no risk-free solution. It just seems that what we really need is most people aren't Jimmy Carter's, you know, I mean, it, that's a, it's a kind of a rare breed. We need something that turns the, turns the tide a little faster because it feels like time is bearing down on us and something needs to happen quicker. And to me, this is the thing that in my assessment, again, which I need to have humility and saying, I don't know the assessment of how much time we have and what is actually going on. But in my assessment, it feels like there's a sense of urgency and that urgency is 
there's something that needs to move masses more quickly. And to me, this is the thing that can move the masses more quickly. And there's many, many different ways. I mean, I love breath work. I love ecstatic dance. I love sensory deprivation tanks. I love vision quests. I love all of these things. And these methods, I think, are also incredibly important. It just feels like the thing that's going to actually move the masses to the greatest degree the, is going to be that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy in particular. I agree that it has really significant, meaningful potential. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we come back to the, with great power comes great responsibility, or we go off the rails with it. And that's kind of the whole story of our time is the power of exponential tech, not being guided with the right wisdom and the right virtue towards what. So I would consider psychedelics, a very powerful psychotechnology. And because of that, I want it stewarded really well. Amen. Um, I want to see that the people who are likely to have psychic breaks, there's assessment and they don't go into that first, that the meaning that people make afterwards is facilitated, that they integrate it in a, in a way that actually leads them to more psychological health rather than the various other ways that it can go. So I like, like the work that Stan Groff did early on with uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy was using existing psychotherapeutic techniques and just recognizing that the increased visualization capacity and the increased uh, plasticity, you could get the effects of 50 sessions and two sessions. And, but it was still in the context of people who had deep study and understanding of the nature of psychological health and how to facilitate that. So I think groups like MAPS are doing really important work currently advancing that kind of um, early work. And it's always tricky, like with, um, psychedelics or natural medicine or various things that are unregulated by being unregulated, they can be totally fucked up. But when, as soon as we understand the issues that you and I understood earlier of how easy, how hard it is to have a regulator actually be good, (laughs) then it's like, okay, I don't really actually want it regulated by the types of regulators we currently have. I also don't really like it unregulated. Fuck. What's the answer? Well, I want it regulated by a collective intelligence that actually understands the issues better. This is the, why a cultural enlightenment has the basis of new institutions and stewarding new capacities is the only way that I really see. And so of course there's this bootloading thing of like a certain level of cultural enlightenment is needed to even hold psychedelics well. And then of course, can psychedelics in turn facilitate that? Now, when you start to think about how do you move the masses quickly with regard to psychological health, first, I don't, I would just want to retract. I, I hate the term, the masses. Um, how, how do we have lots of people start to have meaningful uh, shifts in their experience of reality that affects the nature of the choices they're making to be both healthier for them, their close relationships and the larger world insofar as they affect it. Um, Let's take Facebook and let's take the fact that my feed is going to be curated to stickiness for me. Stickiness is usually limbic. So during George Floyd protests, the people who would be sensitive to it were just getting image after image of black guys being killed by cops. And so much so that as I kept scrolling and seeing all of this, it seems like it's the whole world because it's my whole Facebook feed. Mm. And so I'm getting... I'm getting vicariously traumatized by somebody that I identify with being traumatized. That is, that is 
network dynamic, satellite mediated, AI mediated micro trauma at scale that is custom targeted to traumatize each group in their own unique susceptibilities. Like, fuck that. <laughs> um, I, I don't need psychedelics for that. I mean, it might help. I need to actually change that machine because yeah. could it be sharing with people things that were actually helping to heal and uplift them if it had a different optimization basis? Um, and again, if even the broadcast media, if people are going to click on the thing with the salacious headline, I'm going to have a system of like, exponential warfare that is traumatizing to everybody at scale and polarizing them against each other. Those things have to be addressed because people in new environments can heal quickly and people in the same environments mostly can't. This is actually a really important thing is if you or I got moved to a war-torn region of Darfur, we would change. If we went to a maximum security prison, we would change or we would die. And so am I my own psychology or am I the result of the context I'm a part of? Both, right? And anyone who thinks you're not affected by the context is just, doesn't get it. Um, so there are contexts that everyone is in that is, are conditioning the things that they condition. And we, changing those can start to change. So like, for instance, if I, if, the moment someone decides that they're going to go to a month long camping trip with their friends, their generalized anxiety and trust issues and paranoia, as well as addictions might just start dissolving without psychotherapy because they're around, they're having present human interaction. So they're not seeking artificial human stimulus through the dating app and Facebook and porn, whatever it is. They are having interactions where they know they can trust things because they're getting to watch those people. And the trust that is increasing starts to heal them psychologically, whereas they're currently in an environment where they don't know if the people at work are friends or foes. They don't know if the politicians are lying to them to fuck them, saying they're friends or not. That drives people kind of crazy, right? Because now people are running the simulation of do I trust her or not? Is, is Q real and they're really blood drinking vampires? Or is that totally gibberish and I'm being misled as a psyop? Or like that drives people crazy. And so when we think about healing, we have to not just think about it as healing the individual, but healing the context that us as tribal people, because <laughs> individual homo sapiens never survived. Evolution didn't select for sapiens. It selected for tribes of sapiens. Um, that's another really key part to think about. Is there any way that we can change the context, change these institutions, change these things without changing the people to demand a different context, right? Like, is there any way that we can rise up against these incredibly effective structures that are creating this chaos other than knowing that we ourselves as participatory in them or not, you know, have to he have to reach that state of healing. I mean, is there, it seems to me that ultimately we're saying the same thing. I'm just saying that a priori, the first thing that needs to happen is the individual needs to demand that needs to want to go on that camping trip or needs to want to do this other thing in the first place, which is then going to cause them to share different ideas. And then that will actually change the structure. You know, as more people want healthier food, you know, Walmart has become the number one supplier of organic produce, right? And as people move against, you know, different processed food, I'm sure that we'll look back and McDonald's is going to be, you know, crushing it, providing people with the nutrient, the nutrients that are actually helpful for the most part, right? Because they have the system in place and as demand warrants it, 
they'll the people will, re- will receive it. So to me, it, it always seems to always go back to can we get more and more individuals desiring the change and then allowing these corporate structures, which are going to maximize profit when the profit is in a different area, the that in the area is actually in alignment with what healed people actually want, then the, the structures themselves will change. But it seems like any anything else is, I don't know, I just don't see how it works, but I'm certainly open to it. You're, you're coming back to the question of does does demand drive supply or does supply drive demand? Yeah. I suppose and so. it does both. And we have to work with both of the sides and we have to work with the virtuous relationship between them. This is a key thing. And this, again, demand relates to the individualist orientation. Supply relates to the more collectivist orientation. And to think of them not in a dialectic and what's the relationship between them just won't work, right? It's just silly. It's not understanding the mechanisms yet well enough. So let me give you an interesting example. Mm-hmm. There's other ways to interpret this. This is not a comprehensively accurate interpretation, but it's it's worthwhile as a, it's illustrative for this. What Elon did with Tesla was there was not a market demand for electric cars. The oil prices were cheap enough. There wasn't a belief that electric cars could be that good, that the market demand was actually very low. So supply wasn't rising to do it. People were buying SUVs, whatever. And he's like, no, I think we need electric cars because of climate change and stuff that he believed in. I I got enough money coming out of PayPal that... I can make a source of supply and then manufacture demand where people will want something they don't want right now because they don't even know it exists. And so because of the asymmetry of supply side, he's like, let me make something that is fast as a Ferrari and greener than a Prius and safe as a Volvo and as luxurious as a BMW altogether and everybody will fucking want it through ground up kind of innovation because I can do that. I got enough money to do that. So that was a supply side innovation independent of demand. It was somebody Mm -hmm. like one guy's demand, a few people's demand, a belief in what we should demand. They create a source of supply that manufactured demand where then all the other car companies now are in a race to do that thing. So the other sources of supply had to follow demand, but demand wasn't triggering itself. The market was not self-correcting in an appropriate way without somebody coming in and kind of helping to do that. So in a way, you could say he was playing the invisible hand of the market there um, because the invisible hand wasn't doing the thing that it needed to do because the market wasn't coupled to thinking about long-term environment. And it wasn't coupled to thinking about long-term innovation. So the short-term money-on-money dynamics of the market didn't give it the intelligence it needed to orient. So that's an example of how does a small number of people understanding something, you still have some people that have to come to it, right? He came to that, the other people who were doing it create something that makes it easier for other people to come to it. This is now individualism driving a collectivism that drives more individualism, that drives more collectivism in the right direction. Um, And so if there, if I grow up in Darfur or I grow up in Finland, I'm not going to get the same education. I'm not going to get the same psychological conditioning. It's just really, really different. And that has nothing to do with me as an individual, same genetic, put me in one place or the other place. Right. So how individualist fucking put me in Finland, right? Like nobody would have a question about which of those educational systems or trauma systems or like access to healthcare, early nutrition. So the libertarian, like we need to start with the individuals wanting it thing. Okay. Well, how does that work for the person born in utter fucking poverty? 
it doesn't. How does it, where they're born in a poverty where their brain will not develop because of the lack of nutrients or with AIDS or with the kind of trauma that they can't escape. And this is where we get that, like, <laughs> we affect the whole and we're affected by the whole. We can't think of ourselves just as hive members of a collective because we're much more individual than termites are or bees are. But we also can't think of ourselves just as individuals who are not affected by the whole. So how do we hold ourselves as unique and interconnected at the same time? And agentic and that can where all of our agency will affect the environment, which will affect others, but we're also affected by the environment. How do we hold that synthesis together? So some people are going to have a sense of something that is worth doing that the market doesn't currently incentivize, that there isn't adequate demand for. Figure out how to make that thing. This is why the, it has to start with culture, not start with the market. Because mm -hmm. the market is going to incentivize the thing it incentivizes. That's just flowing on the topology of market incentives. And it will continue to incentivize the war with a for-profit military industrial complex is profitable and extraction and blah, blah, blah. So if we want to do something that is different than the power structure currently in sense, why? What is the why? Some people have an awakening to a why that is not winning at the current system. Yeah. But they then have to make a system that makes more people able to on-ramp onto it, not just do their own thing. And then that's where you get autopoiesis. That's where you get something that can actually become a strange attractor for a new possibility. Absolutely agreed. It it seems to me that that will become more likely because you know, Elon, you know he he arose he arose from that and whatever. This is not a saying that Elon is Elon is the the better angel of all of us. I don't know Elon. I don't know what's going on in his mind or whatever. But it feels to me like the better angels with the capability and potentially the resources and potentially the the collection they are amongst us. You know, interspersed amongst us in this kind of collective you know, this collective world. And it's going to take, yes, the, you know, every different individual to arise to these different understandings about the nature of how connected we actually are. And then certain of these individuals who have the ability to create new structures like Elon did with the cars that will have to emerge to build these new structures. And those will be actually select individuals that will come together. But I guess for me, what I'm trying to sort out for myself is like, all right, wh where can I put my efforts that will be that will be best served? And I it feels to me like, yes, sometimes this will just be for an individual and their family. They'll be a little sweeter to their spouse. They'll be a little kinder to their kids. They'll be a little more helpful to their neighbors. When we have like in Texas, where it snowed like hell for no reason, you know, in the middle of February, and neighbors were helping neighbors, they'll be more likely to do that. They'll be you know, it'll be creating this. And then there'll be some hidden Elons or hidden, you know, hidden better angels that awaken to this, or maybe they even weren't even better angels at all, but they'll turn over to this and these different structures, like you said, which are absolutely necessary, will have to emerge structures that are competitive with the current structures and then get enough momentum where you can actually, where I could actually legitimately hop off Instagram and be like, See you later, Instagram. <laughs> like, there's this other thing that's way cooler, you know, and way like, and has has the fundamental values that are needed. And uh, and I think you know, I've met some individuals who are actually who are actually doing that, and that's actually their prerogative. They're targeting. I know one individual, and I won't mention his name, but he's taking 
some of the builders of AI, some of the leading edge builders of AI and bringing them into five MEO ceremonies and saying like, whatever you build in this AI needs to have this fundamental understanding of unicity. And this is my best way. And this is his words, my best way of sharing this felt sense of unicity is through this particular ceremonial experience. And so if I can give these people, he's targeting them specifically, if I can give these people, because he has access and he has also the experience, if I can give these people this felt sense, they'll build this into the new structures. This is the new structure that has the force and this will create a new system ultimately. And it also, you know, hearing, hearing you talk makes me want to reach out to him and be like, fuck man, thank you again. <laughs> you know, like I see how important it is what you're doing, but it's now I'm, I'm even more aware how important that is that the people who have the ability to create massive structural technological and corporate change um, by creating a different system that they're empowered and embodied in a way that's going to actually carry that out. I think um, a lot of people ask the question, if we need to recouple power with wisdom and virtue, where we've had a system where wisdom and virtue make you less good at the game of power. And those who are more sociopathic, more narcissistic, both oriented towards power and happy to win it when lose games uh, do better in those systems. Do we recouple them by taking people who have more orientation towards wisdom and virtue and trying to figure out how to empower them or get them to be good at the game of power? Or do we take people who currently have power and try to condition some wisdom and virtue in them? Mm -hmm. And they're both honestly very difficult propositions and both important. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's a both a both and and the both and is is definitely uh, seems to be the synthesis, you know. And and there's always there's dangers on every side, and I think finding that middle way is uh, is immensely important. And I, I get that that's what you are doing, you know, with this podcast of you have an individual agentic, you know, orientation towards a healing growth learning path. You're coming across things. You're like, fuck, I want everybody else to know those things so that they can do have get access to it and do stuff with it. So how do I take the people who I find insightful and, and, and help. And that's a cultural enlightenment process, right? How do I help mm -hmm. bring more knowledge, wisdom, insight to more people with the belief that increased collective intelligence and collective wisdom will generate lots of positive things beyond the obvious ones we can predict. Yeah. Well, and uh, being able to talk to, you know, brilliant heart-centered people like yourself are, are a huge part of that. So uh, just the utmost gratitude for everything you're putting out and for having this conversation. And uh, yeah, man, just, just really grateful that, that we're in this space. And, um, you know, ultimately the other thing that gives me peace is, whether we win or not, you know, whether this thing goes up in a ball of flames or it doesn't, how we orient towards it is really what matters. We can't control the unknown. We can't control all outcomes, but how we play, like how we fight the fight. Do we fight with love? Do we fight heart forward and head up helping as many people along the way? If the end comes and we've known we've done everything else, you know, even though it's the worst possible outcome, we can do so with the full heart and just say, fuck. I gave it everything I got, you know, like, uh, today is a good day to die. You know, like I've done my best. And, uh, and I think that's, that's all that we can do is just know that we've, we've given it our best and, uh, and given it everything we got. And, uh, you know, certainly these tools that you're providing are absolutely crucial in, in helping, helping us all be able to, to live that out in the best way possible. 
It was good talking with you. Thank you for yeah. here. It was fun. Absolutely, brother. Thank yeah. you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Is there anything? Um, give people the the URL for consilience and uh, and anything else you want to point people to. Sure. the The consilience project, consilienceproject.org, is just at, at the date of publishing this is super nascent, like not even really a beta. It's a prototype that is pointing towards what we're working on. Um, we could talk about that more sometime. It's a five-year project. It self-terminates at the end of five years because as you were mentioning, the organization, the organization's desire to keep perpetuating itself, which every organization has, ends up being a perverse incentive if it's trying to solve a problem or if it really solved it, it obsolete itself. And then it becomes a basis to just manage the problem forever because it gets some power by doing so. So sometimes building... Uh, life cycles in or completion processes in is very helpful. But uh, yeah, more on that will show up over the next uh, several months, but consilienceproject.org and um, yeah, that's it. Beautiful. Thank you so much, brother. And thank you everybody for tuning in. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Daniel Schmachtenberger. Definitely check out the Consilience Project. And if you feel it in your heart, you can always offer a donation. Next week, we have the musician Satsang on the podcast. Can't wait to share that one with you. I love you guys, and I'll see you next week.